Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Vegetius. Pulling Rank. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are so pleased to have you back, sir. I am, I am happy that you're <laughs> feeling better. Oh, man, the entire time I was listening to that episode, because it just dropped today, so this is the first time I got a chance to listen to it, and I've just spent the whole time being like, oh, I had stuff I could say there. Oh, it'd be so good. I know. Like, there were a few times, like, uh, you wouldn't have heard it in the episode itself, but as we were going through editing, I would, like, stop and pause occasionally, being like, yeah, I know Thumbs is going to have something to say here. <laughs> Wait a second. And then there's just this, like, this blank space of sadness, and so, yeah, no, it's... it's <laughs> It's good to have you back, buddy. It's good to have you back. And it's it's good to be back talking with y'all. Uh, it, winter has, has come. Uh, as it the is start. so cold out. <laughs> I don't know where y'all are, are hailing from, but here in Montana, we are uh, geared up for one of one of the most intense record-breaking uh, winters, if Noah is to be believed. We've already had a, like, I don't remember the last time we had snow this early, like, especially this much snow. Parts of Montana is the coldest it's ever been this early in recorded history. Yeah. It hit like negative 23 in some places. Here, it's a balmy like 7 to 9 degrees. Like, we are not living in negative 23, don't get me wrong. But it be chilly, and the heaters be on. Yep, so so if you hear something kicking on and off on Thumbs' side, that's of course his furnace doing its job, and that steady whine in the back of my audio is my heater keeping me from perishing in my office. So uh, we appreciate your patience with that. We're going to try to get as much of that sound out post-production as possible, but uh, you know how it is. There's it's only so much you can do. Survival is more important. It's better than listening to our teeth chatter and like the slow succumbing to, to hypothermia that would then soon follow. At least I think so. Yeah, you can't see it, but we're in like sweatshirts and long underwear, and I've got a big blanket, and you've got a coat. <laughs> yep, I got my long johns. Uh, yep, so uh, yeah, uh, we're, we are here. We are continuing to keep warm so that we can provide you with quality programming throughout these cold winter months. And and, and speaking of uh, going places and providing more things, I wanted to give a shout out real quick to our newest patron, Lear, out of Der Demarion. Uh, she has uh, become one of our, our our newest patrons. And so, uh, yeah, just thank you so much. Uh, we again, super appreciate it. Yeah, I was not expecting to get this much support this, this early on. So you guys are amazing. Uh, I, I'm glad you think we're worth it. And we're going to continue doing everything we can to, to uh, give you something excellent to listen to every two weeks. And, and the rest of you as well. But, you know, the patrons, they're they're pretty neat. They're giving us money. That's pretty awesome. 
But yeah, so Lear, uh, of course, thank you so much. And uh, you're, you're going to be receiving your excellent rewards very soon. We're, we have our stickers printed and ready to go. We have our little placards printed, ready to go. Thumbs and I still have to sign like 50 uh, things in a row. So I hope you've been <laughs> practicing your signature thumbs because I have. Um, <laughs> Got to avoid them hammond cramps, you know, draining. Yeah. Got to train for the game you want, right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> I sign stuff right at work all the time. It's, I sign 50 times a day. Oh, he's good to go. He's good. Oh, we're set. But yeah, so. <laughs> sorry. Moving I'm forward. Sorry. <laughs> so, so last week, I think, or, or the week before, I geeked out a little bit about the Primaris... Uh, the new the new Space Marine Codex, and I, I'm just tickled by it. I really enjoy it. And there were several things that I that I liked more than other things out of it. And and, uh, and actually, at the end of this, I'm going to spoil. I know we don't. I know we don't normally talk about like the battle or what we're going to do at the end at the beginning of the episode. But our battle this week is actually going to be going through and talking about uh, the organization of a Space Marine chapter, because the organization is actually extremely similar to that of a Roman legion which is what we're going to be discussing on the show today. So I figured, hey, uh, very similarly topicked subjects, I suppose. So we're going to go over them in the same episode. But right now, I wanted to geek out a little bit about this Primaris Tech Marine. I haven't had a Tech Marine in previous editions uh, because I just, they didn't contribute to my play style and I didn't think they were as good as they needed to be to hold that position on the field. Like, I'm, I'm used to playing Adeptus Mechanicus. If you're not repairing things at at least that rate and at least as useful as a Tech Priest, then I just don't want you on the field. That being said, this Primaris Tech Marine is awesome. I pre-ordered him. I went in when he, like, the day he came out to pick him up. I was very excited to have him. Yeah, the, I mean, I don't want to give away too much, but the, his stats are just outstanding, especially the ability to upgrade him uh, makes him really really good and a solid addition to any army that's planning on fielding any amount of battle tanks, really. Like, it's just going to keep your stuff alive so much longer. So I love him. I picked him up and I just wanted to share that with you. I, I wish I could tell you that I'd be posting amazing pictures of my painting job here in a few weeks, but I am not an amazing painter. So, and I don't think you guys want to see the gray plastic, like everybody's posting gray plastic. So when I do get him painted up professionally, you guys will be the first to know. We'll share pictures then. Yeah, we'll show pictures then. And the last thing that we want to kind of talk about, I guess, in the in the intro is because there's not much. Again, like uh, thumbs is working. We're all we're all very busy. Uh, not a whole lot is going down wargaming wise, so it's it's difficult to find things to talk about <laughs> in this kind of uh, introduction area. This is this is my hibernation season. I'll be real honest with you, cats. Yeah. I mean, again, we live in Montana. It's unless you're one of those people that like lives for snowboarding or skiing. Uh, winter is a nuisance. It's a nuisance. <laughs> um, but I just picked up Fallout 76. I know it's been out for a while, uh, but it was on sale this weekend. And it was uh, like I would read increasingly good reviews on it. When it first came out, I'd heard some, some reviews on it that made me think it wasn't a game that I necessarily wanted to play. And then as it's gotten more updates, as it's gotten more community involvement, it's apparently become a very good game. And so I thought, hey, I'll check it out. I'll pick it up. Um, Big fan of Fallout. Yeah, I, 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 like the, I like the other games, so uh, why not give this one a try? I honestly felt like I had just transitioned from Fallout 4 to this one. Like the, like the controls were extremely similar. Of course, the weapons, the layout, everything. Like it was just an easy transition from the previous games to this game. I don't think that the multiplayer is clunky. 
Uh, in fact, most people just leave you alone because they're off doing their own things. And then you've got this gigantic map. And, and not, not only does it have all of the music, at least to my knowledge, from Fallout 4, but it has a bunch of uh, more music. I love the music they do for Fallout. Oh, that yeah. old, like, 40s, 50s stuff just gets me. There, there are times when I'm not even that interested in playing Fallout games, but I just put it on so I can listen to their radio. Like, but yeah, there's this, there's a song that's on this one. Of course, this one takes place in West Virginia, so you're gonna have uh, like 16 Tons is on there. Mm -hmm. uh, take, Take Me Home, Country Roads is on there. Oh, I love that song so much. But then <laughs> there's also a song that I've, I've heard since I was young, and like it fills me. Like, cause it's such a cheerful song, but you listen to the words and I, I don't know, like, I guess it, it depends on who you are, how it hits you, but it's an equally cheerful and terrifying song. It's called Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition. Have you heard this song? I'm sure I have, but Jesus. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> YouTube it. YouTube. I, 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 to you listening, if you guys haven't heard Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition, this is a cultural experience you don't want to miss out on. <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. So. Uh, follow, it's been, it's been, uh, very nice in between like taking breaks, uh, between reading and taking notes and everything to be able to just kind of relax and, and get onto this. Uh, and of course I'm bouncing from game to game to game in between stuff, just trying to keep my mind busy as I'm sure everybody else is as well. You told me in fallout that you've developed a new build too. I have. Yeah, actually, thank you for reminding me about that. Um, the, the very last playthrough that I did of Fallout 4, I went a completely different direction than I have ever done in a Fallout game because from the very first time I played, uh, I, can't, I can't remember which, first, which Fallout I played first, but the first character I made was a gunslinger, right? Used a pistol. I put all my points into vats and into accuracy. And so when you pop it up, you're just kind of like headshot, headshot, headshot with a little pistol from like medium range. And it's incredibly accurate, does a, a bunch of damage, crits all over the place. And I was like, all right, I found my build. This is my Fallout build. And every playthrough I did a Fallout, like since then was kind of based around that idea of just like some sort of ace, like a long range ace. Well, in Fallout 3, that's way more of a thing too. Right. Like... Because there's guns, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm applying real world logic to this game and I'm like, why would I bring a knife to a gunfight? That sounds silly. And so this last playthrough of Fallout, I was like, you know, I'm just going to go for something fun. I don't even know if it'll work, but I'm going to try something different. And so I got on there and I made a melee class guy. He's all strength, all uh, endurance. Actually has quite a bit of charisma too, because I like to be able to talk my way out of situations. I love high charisma barbarians. Yeah. <laughs> They're the best combo. I, I, I'm suddenly getting an image in my mind from like Full Metal Alchemist of who is that guy? Like a cact Captain Strong Arm? The, 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 of, the guy with the little mustache. Yeah, the Strong yeah. Arm arc Alchemist. Yeah, it's the Strong Arm Alchemist. Like, he, I, like I look at him and I'm like strength and charisma right there. That's what we want to go for. At least one anime fan I know of who I know listens to the show is just screeching right now that neither <laughs> of us know that character's name. Oh man, I love the Full Metal Alchemist. That's a great... That's a great uh, manga and anime. I really enjoyed that one. Armstrong? I don't, I, I'm not... Armstrong, that might be it too. I haven't watched it since high school. I know I liked it. <laughs> we think that the words arm and the word strong are involved in some way. You let us know this is not our lane. We're going to stay in our lane. <laughs> this is not our lane. Um, but no, so I kind of went for that kind of build. And, and I was like, this is so good. And what I... What I hadn't been thinking about before is, like, if you play a, a really brutal melee build right, you end up taking less damage than you would with a long-range character. Because you run in, and yeah, you're going to take two or three shots on your way in. 
But it, like if you're using a sledgehammer, like my dude does, you stagger them a bunch of the time. So you hit them with a sledgehammer, you're staggering them so they can't shoot you anymore, you do a bunch of damage with the sledgehammer, and you just beat them into the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there are some tactics. You don't just like go sprinting at enemy lines willy-nilly. Like if you've got a line of enemies that are shooting at you, you want to go toward one end or the other because if you go toward the center, that's a whole lot of bullets coming your way that uh, you know you don't necessarily need to take when you could just strafe to the side and take them one-on-one coming at the, the right angle. You know? Yeah, don't let them envelop you. Like that's true of literally anything. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, it's a fast, but you can't just sit there. I mean, you have to be very dynamic with a melee class in Fallout, but it does work. And I'm, and I, and I actually encountered a, another new player the other day. We kind of drew weapons and both realized that neither of us wanted to aggress and then just kind of went about our business. But, uh, <laughs> like, uh, they, they drew their pistol and then my character, I've got him, like, I, I got this package where I have him just dressed like a settler. So he's got these like nice little, little jeans on suspenders, a little kepi sort of thing. And he's just got this big just darn it all <laughs> sledgehammer and and i and like the guy literally took a step back like and i'm sure it was partially because it was a melee weapon but like he drew his i drew mine and he was like whoop <laughs> you know that maybe i don't uh, want to do this uh i haven't played fallout since new vegas since i'm a video game luddite and all my technology is 10 years old uh but i think my favorite build i ever did there was a melee and they had it was like rocket fists or something like Word. you you took the brawl ability and it just powered it up and it could send them flying if you hit them right like it was it was so cool and in very much the same way if i was like oh look here i am with this pistol or i could punch them in the head and they explode like one of those is way more fun to play absolutely and and while i think like i i tried to do a punchy character at one point but the 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 thing that killed that for me that made me not want to do the punchy characters you can't actually use punching weapons and power armor at the same time yeah power armor is a pain to get in new vegas so it was less of a concern gotcha yeah power armor is boss and it makes your melee swings even stronger and so like it's it and then you've, you've got just this massive space marine looking dude with a sledgehammer and that's that's a scary thought you know power hammer right there i love it oh well, I think we've jaw-jacked for quite quite long enough. What do you think, though? I think it's time to dive in. Let's dive right in. So we're going to be getting into this episode on pulling rank with our first section on organization and decay. So one thing to remember here uh, as you're reading this section is it has extremely wonderful detailed notes on what a large army and its rank structure should be. But it is talking somewhere between four to six figure armies. We are talking a thousand people, absolute minimum. Right, right. A a legion is a thousand people. A century is a hundred people. So when when we're talking about the organizational structure of a legion, we're talking about a structure that is supposed to incorporate a whole lot of moving bodies. We don't know of any units that uh, that actually are able to field anywhere near those numbers. Like if you're able to field 20 or 30 members at a single event, that's usually pretty darn good. You're doing pretty solid, yeah. Like I And I've seen like the BOF, which is a larger unit, like field somewhere between like 50 and 80 sometimes. But you have to be in the right part of the country. And even then, you know, I've never seen 100 of the same unit on the field at the same time. I'm sure it's happened somewhere, but I've never seen it. Right. 
Right. And so the numbers that we're talking about are massively scaled down uh, for physical wargaming and, and also for, for uh, intellectual wargaming. When you're looking at a, a board, when you're playing uh, like 40K, for instance, like if I go out there and I'm playing my Space Marines, I don't have my full Space Marine chapter deployed. I can't. Like, I, I, I haven't done the math on it, but that would be like five figures worth of points <laughs> to have to put together for a game. Like, that's an insane number of troops. What's a, what's a base space marine cost? Oh, God. You got to start asking me hard questions, of course. Um, anywhere hey, between. You said like, I wouldn't trip you up today. On, on this section about lore. <laughs> on this section about lore, you I'm goob. Sorry. Um, but a base base range anywhere between like 10 and 20 points, depending on what they're equipped with. Okay. So basic would be 10 to 20,000 at that point. And that would be like minimum numbers and minimum artillery and equipment. Yeah. We're talking no tanks, which of course, like if you look at the organization of a space Marine chapter, they're supposed to have tanks with them. They're supposed to have, of course, HQs and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, no, nobody is ever playing with the numbers that are being suggested here. However, the organizational strategies that are being suggested here are applicable at a, at a micro scale as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, it, what is it called? It's Armageddon. It's the like Warhammer 40K for bigger armies and smaller Apocalypse. figures. Apocalypse. Thank you. Apocalypse. I, I knew it was an A. Is that more like a full chapter going? Or It can be a little bit. Like if you were to be like, it would be easier, definitely easier to play a game with apocalypse and try to play an entire chapter. But I think even there you would still struggle a little bit just because of just, again, you're talking a thousand space Marines. That's a thousand space. Marines. Yeah. That's a lot. That's, that's too many, too many space Marines. If they're chapter compliant, which not all of them are, but we're not going to get into that here. Anyways, the point is we're looking 20, 50 people generally. So there's still a lot of useful there. Just make sure to keep an account. Don't go too, it's easy to go too rank heavy when you read this and you're like, oh, you need to have the sergeants and lieutenants and captains. And no, for us, we need like maybe a sergeant and a captain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, remember, yeah, yeah. In like a, a, a company, a space marine company, it's only a captain and a lieutenant. And again, I keep getting off topic. We're going to talk about this part later, but yeah, scale it down. Uh, and, and definitely you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. As the saying goes, uh, for those of you who may not know that anachronism, you, if you have too many commanders, it is hard to get anything done. Oh, yeah. I suppose that's a very American anachronism, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I was just thinking about that. And I was like, uh, we have listeners in Japan who might be like, <laughs> why wouldn't you want more cooks in the kitchen? Doesn't that make more food? Like, again, just I, 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 we're trying to make this accessible <laughs> to everybody. But yeah, so so do remember that when you're when you're looking at the the organization that we're talking about here. He starts off talking here about recruits, and we have already kind of beat that to death in the last two episodes. But uh, again, to kind of reiterate that these recruits need to be chosen carefully, and he suggests here that they need to be trained for at least four months daily, training for four months um, before they see combat. And you say that's pretty standard for uh, like modern military stuff too, right? Because you did basic training. Yep. Uh, I w- yeah, I was in the Army, and uh, when I went through, it was about three months for me, but I was, I was at that time I was in in training to be a transportation management coordinator. So after I got out of like the basic training that everybody goes through, my actual classes for my job were not as long, but it averages anywhere between like four and six months usually for, for the overall training. So this is still pretty legit. Like we still train our soldiers very heavily before we send them into combat. And, and 
for this reason, I actually kind of support this. Like, again, we're not, we're not able to train to this level. Like, I don't know anybody who's going to be able to go through Vegetius's training regimen every single day and still live a normal life in the modern world is if you're not actively military. No, not at all. <laughs> we're not getting paid to do this. And so in my mind, like I extend this out, like I, before somebody goes to their first event, cause like for me practice, when you're at home on your home field in your home realm practicing, that's not necessarily the battlefield. That's not necessarily warfare. That's you and your realm mates practicing and trying to develop the skills to go and participate in the real deal, which is the event. And so when you get to the event, like for me, it's good to have some things under your belt. Obviously nobody is totally prepared for their first event. You just can't I be. certainly wasn't. But I recommend that you that you at least spend a year training in your home realm and you and you take it seriously. It's one of those things where uh, you're there for every weekly practice if your realm holds a weekly practice and then you're trying to spar one or tw one or two times at least with somebody out outside of practice throughout the week. We're talking 2-3 hour sessions here. And so in my mind, that's going to get you set up to actually be able to perform at a level that you want to perform at at your first event. But the thumbs actually disagrees with me on this a little bit. No, uh, you before we recorded, you called this the uh, blood in the water, throw them in the deep end idea. And I'm kind of very much on that front of uh, I, I do believe I agree with you on the year part of I think it takes about a year of regularly playing to really get to the point that you start to know what you're doing. Your muscle memory has kicked in, your everything. But uh, you say probably don't go to an event until you've done that. I, I know people who they first started with events. Or, you know, uh, a buddy of ours went to an event after one practice and had a great time. Uh, I think throwing them in the deep end you they, they're not going to fight well at that event, but they will uh, get a, a much better idea of why we do this and a much like deeper immersion into the culture earlier can actually I think make people stay longer so yeah I, I, and again uh, we're not saying that one of us is right one of us is wrong these are just two different philosophies on this particular matter again I, I come from a military background and as a soldier I want to be as prepared as possible and have my troops as prepared as possible before seeing combat for the first time uh, but Thumbs absolutely makes a valid point that trial by fire, you know, you, you may not be able to perform at, a, at an ace level at that point, but gosh, you will learn a lot. Mm -hmm. You you will learn a lot. And it's it's absolutely going to be a great immersion into into why we do this. Because, uh, you know, Sunday practices or whatever day of the week your, your realm may, might practice or your local club might practice for Warhammer, you know, that's fun. It's good fun. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's you getting All together with it. your with your friends or your neighbors and that sort of thing and you're and you're engaging in this and it's it's an awesome time. I'm not we're not trying to take away from that at all. But there is something about a Warhammer tournament. There's something about a Belagarth event that just cannot be encapsulated in what we do uh, at, at practice uh, weekly. Well, and until you attend it, you won't understand it. Like uh, um, part of the reason why I like it is almost every fighter I see who goes to an event early, their their fighting level takes an immediate jump after it, even if they get stomped, just because they start to have an idea of like what the target range actually is. Yeah, like what skill what skill level they're actually aiming for, rather than like because because sometimes your realm might be better or worse than like the national standard. 
I know for, for here in Stygia, like when we first started fighting, our Nash, our realm standard was way below the national standard. So going to an event, our first times going to events were rude awakenings. They were a wake up call. Yeah. Well, and um, you might not even necessarily realize I fight harder generally. Like on average, I fight harder at events. I, oh yeah. You know, we've talked about at a bell practice, I might only go up to about seventy five. You know, 75 to 80 is my, like, standard at events. As opposed to, like, my upper end of how much effort I'm putting into it. So, uh, it's, it's not even necessarily a conscious effort. You're not even necessarily going, all right, I'm going to kick it up to the next level at an event. It's just the energy, the atmosphere, the intensity. The yeah. So you'll be like, no, I think I know how I stand up against Turkey Feathers or Toto or Malark or Par or... Sethra or whoever and then you get to an event and you see them actually like trying and you go oh okay and the other thing is you'll learn their patterns like for instance uh, you, you mentioned Toto he and his brother Katetsu became absolute experts at fighting one another nobody was better at killing Toto than Katetsu nobody was better at killing Katetsu than Toto those skills did not necessarily translate to fighting other people all the time like Toto is still an outstanding fighter I'm not trying to take away from either of them but they became, that happens to all of us though. Like if we only fight our realm mates, we become good at predicting our realm mates patterns. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we've become good general fighters. It just means that we are establishing patterns with our brains, which is what humans do. Well, and especially when you're from a uh, uh, realm like ours, that's really remote because you only fight the same like five people. And small, remote and mm -hmm. small. So to get way back to our point that we got way off of there that's my bad <laughs> different opinions on how soon to start off but we both generally agree that it's going to take you about a year of dedicated fighting to really get to the point that you don't have to like think about it at all times that your your muscle memory is there that your awareness of what's going on is there your ability to read a field is there that's probably the most important one to me yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Of, I mean, again, and after, I mean, you still have a lot to learn. It's not like after a year you have everything you're going to need, but uh, the basics are there. Yeah, you're leaving the tutorial by that point. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That's a good analogy, leaving the tutorial. And it's kind of the same thing with uh, with uh, intellectual wargaming too. Uh, not just things like uh, Warhammer, but even things like chess. You know, I've, I've started watching this show on Netflix and it's reminded me that there's other intellectual wargaming that I can talk about that isn't just uh, 40k and I love chess chess is fantastic and if you were to just start playing chess like it takes a while to really get a familiarity with with the openers with uh, like where what the different pieces do what the what the different combos can do how to think several moves ahead like that can take a while that's the part I always have trouble with I'm like I know I should be three moves ahead but I'm still just figuring out what I can do right Right, and so uh, it that, and that takes practice. It takes dedicated practice. I'm sure if you were to start, you know, tomorrow, and do a daily chess session for the next four months, you'd be pretty good. You'd yeah. you'd, you'd have a lot of those things you were struggling with. Those basic things you were struggling with wouldn't be there anymore. It'd be second know? nature. And with something like 40k, it becomes even more complicated because we have a bunch of rules to memorize and a bunch of different combos and uh, and things to remember as they're moving around on the field. So study is absolutely important for us too and, and preparation as well. So yeah, make sure that you go into battle prepared uh, is, is kind of my mantra. And uh, Thumbs says, have fun, learn something. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of sums up my life, like my worldview, if you want to be real honest about it. So yeah. 
there you go. Two different two different perspectives on this uh, on this idea. Uh, the next thing that he talks about in this section is the military mark and the oath. What he is speaking about in the book, literally, is a brand or a tattoo that is placed upon the skin, indicating not only that you're a member of the Legion, but kind of where you're supposed to be. And then the oath is, of course, you, you swear before God and the Emperor that you're not going to betray your post, and if you do, may he strike you down. Huzzah! Sort of thing. And and this is very common. This is something that, that still occurs in a lot of... Um, militaries, not so much the military mark as much, but like when I was in the army, we had to take an oath. We had to take an oath to defend the, the country from enemies foreign and domestic, and so that's something that, that still absolutely occurs. Well, and even without a formal mark, almost every military person I've ever met has a tattoo of their time in the military somewhere. Either either commemorating a campaign that they participated in, or a unit that they particularly loved, or a unit mate that was uh, they were very fond of, or something like that. Yeah, it, it's not uncommon for folks who are in the military to want to to decorate that service on their bodies. And I mean, even me, I've got like in a literal sense, I've got the SPQR on my arm because I'm Catholic and I was in the army, so I was like, ah, Roman Legion, and so I've got Senatus Populusque on my arm. So I've, I've technically got that military mark as well, but in terms of the wacky bats that you do on your weekend with your friends, be real careful about getting a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because things change, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but like things change, loyalties change, things shift. And so, you know, if you, if you get a unit, like if you join a unit, you're real proud of your unit that first year and you get a tattoo. And then a couple year, years down, there's some drama. You have to leave that unit. Oh, you've still got that yeah. tattoo. <laughs> the the number of people I know who have a unit tattoo who are no longer in that unit almost outnumbers the people I know who have that unit tattoo and still are. It's a little safer to like get a realm tattoo for this reason, because even if you move realms, like it's still kind of a, a catalog of where you've been. And, and I suppose you could do the same. Yeah, this was my home. Um, I would totally get a Stygia Lotus tattoo. I mean, I've Stygia has been a part of my life since I was 15. Like it's... It's real important to me. Uh, I've been a member of the Gulf for five years. I have uh, been a leader in the Gulf, and I don't think I'd get this tattoo yet. I'm not saying never, but uh, just I'm real careful about this one. Absolutely, and you should be. It's, <laughs> it's something permanent going on your body, and and so like the, again, the difference here is you know the Roman legionnaire wouldn't have to worry about eventually joining the goth army or the anglo army or the carthaginian army or anything like that if you were in the roman legion you were in the legion i'm just imagining some like new schlub that just finished training being like sorry sir i can't take the mark i think i might want to try out the celts later on in life (laughs) (laughs) yeah that would have gone well that would have gone real well So yeah, again, this is, and so this it's something a little bit different. This still kind of happens within uh, physical war gaming, and I'm not a part of any official teams uh, when it comes to 40k yet, but it might, it probably happens there too, where you'll still have a mark that isn't necessarily a permanent part of the body. So within Belagarth or Dagger here, we have belt flags. You know, you, you mark your, your body with a, a belt flag that shows your allegiance. You put it on your garb somewhere. You put it put on it your on the shield. Sh- yeah. Put it on your shield. Put it on your heraldry. You know, there's a lot of ways to incorporate it. Uh, you can also flags. I've seen people do like a flag, like a unit, uh, like a standard of some sort. I've been working on a new set of flags that's got like four major symbols for me coming up. Yeah. So that's, that's a way that you can show your pride in your unit, pride in your realm without, you know, 
putting something very permanent on your body that, that might change later. You know, your feelings toward it might change later. You know, I've, I, and I, I'm not sitting here trying to, to discourage people from getting tattoos, by the way. I've got... My mother's a professional tattoo artist. I am very pro-tattoo. I've got 11 tattoos at this point or something along those lines. I stopped counting after a while. So we're not sitting here yeah, trying I'm to tell you... 10 or 11. Not to get tattoos, but just to maybe <laughs> maybe really make sure that you're that, that where you're at is a permanent location before you get a, a unit tattoo on you. And then the oath is another thing that we kind of disagree with. Again, with, with all of these different organizations. Oh, and with the, the tattoos, to go back for a second to the 40K, I've absolutely seen people with like T-shirts that have their, their team name or their team logo on them. And so that's a way to kind of show their military mark to be like, hey, this is the, the crew that I belong to. Again, without getting it tattooed on their body. Now, this oath is another thing that, because these things shift so much, and because, again, this isn't, with the, with the United States military, an oath makes sense. You know, with, yeah. with, the Ro- with the Roman legion, an oath makes sense. You're making a career in, like, lifelong dedication. Right, right. And it's, and it's in the real world. What we do, you know, on the weekends or, or whenever with our friends is a lot of fun. It means the world to us. But there has to be a line at some point where real world and, and, and fantasy are no longer. And so call, making people take oaths, like actual oaths, is kind of a stretch for us. The problem is it gets taken really seriously. And, it you know, it's an oath. Oaths should be taken seriously. Right. But, you know, I'm not the same person I was when I was 25, let alone 20. If I had given an oath then, and you were like, oh, you made this oath, I'm sorry, man. Like... Uh, it, it, what might have been true and good for me then might not be true now. Right, right. And again, like you said, an oath is a serious commitment. And what we do is, while some people take the athleticism seriously, honestly, what we do is it's fun. It's supposed to be fun. And so like, a, like that kind of a, a super serious commitment, like like an oath is like a marriage, you know? And an oath is, is again, like you're, you're swearing yourself to the, to the actual military or something. Like, and again, you do you. We're not we're not going to go around and oath patrol people and be like ah oh, or whatever. But for us, oof. the idea makes us uncomfortable, you know, at least within the context of of our games. Yeah, and it's not like you know we're not taking our stuff seriously at the same time. I mean, we're oh, sure. sitting here at ten thirty at night talking about this random stuff because this is stuff we take seriously. Yeah, but remembering that balance between real life and fantasy, I think, is the most important lesson out of this. Now, I guess uh, something that, that could be kind of construed from this that is kind of practical is I do know some units that do contracts where, like, if you if you join the unit, they expect you to be active for a certain period of time uh, before either retiring or quitting the unit. And so in order to, like, get full membership or full benefits or, or whatever the case may be, I know that the EBF, for instance, does this. I can't remember the, the time. I think it's five years. I think they have a like a five-year contract where they're like, we expect you to to honor this if you're going to come into it uh, because they, they do want a little bit more of a serious commitment. Now, again, that's not a lifelong oath. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not like an oath that's taken between a knight and a king or something like that. It is uh, a group of people who want to bring a level of professionalism to their unit. And so they believe that a contract is a part of that. Mm-hmm. And it's also not legally binding. So you can be like, well, I'm sorry, life went different directions. But... My intention is, yes, that ceremonies when you get into a unit, I'm a big proponent of just like 
the balance. The balance is really and a, like a, a nice little ritual to mark the transition of a prospect to a recruit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like all of life is ritual. All of life is ceremony. And so having something special to like welcome somebody into the unit, absolutely do that. But anything that is that is super binding and taking this seriously, maybe avoid. Chill the hell out. Yeah. Yeah. Chill the heck out. So now we're going to get into the organization a little bit, like actually into the way that the, the legions would have marched into battle. And again, we're going to go over the way that this was done historically, the way that Vegetius describes it very quickly. And then we're going to kind of analyze how it's practical for wargaming. Because again, we're not fielding like a, a thousand people or 10,000 people. Like that's just not what we're doing. We're fielding, you know, a, a small force of plastic figures, maybe numbering between two, one on 100 and 200. If you've got a horde army, maybe. And, and, you know, less than that in terms of bodies, in terms of physical wargaming most of the time. So yeah, remember. Scale this down, make it microcosm, we're good to go. So the first cohort, also called the Malarian cohort, now the only two of these that were named were the first two, so don't, don't just think I stopped talking about it after I do the second one, there's just no more names. Vegetius might literally not have known them and just didn't look them up. Yeah, like that, it's that too. From what I've uncovered about him. Uh, so yeah, the first cohort, also known as the Malarian cohort, uh, this is the best of the best of the best, sir. They carry the eagle, which is like the big standard of Rome, right? They are the best and the brightest from good lineage and with strong education. They're commanded by the highest ranking and most respected centurion in the legion. And they have the honored position of the right flank of the first line. Now we're going to go over the significance of some of this stuff uh, here in a second. But yeah, so these are these are your, your top guys. This is your, your veteran squad, your elite troops, your crack troops. And and again, most people are right-handed, remember. So again, Thumbs and I are, are looking at each other here. And I, I had to remember when I was doing this analysis of being like, why? Why would you want to position people like this? Why do you want your crack troops <laughs> on the right? And it's like, oh yeah, most people are right-handed. Um, so if you, you imagine that, that means that like you've got your best people being able to like defend that more weak side. Yeah and free use of swords nothing in their way for the best swordsman yep yep so yeah th this is not only a risky position but it's also a, a respected position and that's why they put the best of the best of the best sir uh here so yeah that's your malarian cohort number one. Second cohort is called the quingentarian cohort now again i took a little bit of latin in both college and high school it has been a while and so sometimes my uh ability to look at these conjuncted words is is a little bit less but without looking up the meaning of it the, the thing that comes immediately to mind is like the people in their 50s are placed in this unit because like mm -hmm. octogenarian is of somebody in their 80s so i read this and i'm like oh quintagenarian yeah oh somebody in their 50s i assume that's not what they meant i assume this is not the the aarp cohort um <laughs> bring me my dentures and my shield 50 is not that old. It would have been back then, but it's back not that old Back then, 50 now. would have been that. pretty old, bud. But uh, he does say that this is one of the four weak cohorts. So you're going to notice that four of these cohorts are considered weak cohorts. We're going to kind of go over that a little bit after we go through them all. Uh, but yeah, this is where you would send some of your weaker or your, or your newer troops, your fresher troops. The third cohort is your sturdy troops. This is your stout like center because this one ends up being the center of that first line when it comes around so you you want your your really good 
solid shieldmen, your linebacker types here in the third cohort. Yeah, no doubt. If you've got if you've got thick people, you want them in the third cohort. Yeah. Because the sturdy people need to go there. And that, again, that goes in the center of the first line. The four, fourth cohort, much like the second cohort, is a weak cohort numerically and also in terms of the troops that are, are placed there. The fifth cohort is where you would put, and I quote, some of the best men. So not quite as good as the first cohort, but still some of the best. You're still looking at, like, uh, you're probably you're looking at your B-plus students here. You know, all your A students got per, put in uh, first cohort, and so you got your me. B. You're looking at people like me at this level. You got your B-plus students going over here into, the, your, into your fifth cohort. And because this is the left flank of the first line. So you'll notice that, that the first cohort has now become the right flank of the first line, and the fifth cohort is the left flank of the first line. Okay? Sixth cohort is the finest of the young men. This is your, your, your best of your new recruits, your, because they've got their sprawling. Their ability, their ability to move around is still there. They're well-trained. They're not quite veterans. They're not quite grizzled, but they are the best of your newest troops. And they're on this side. They're the, the right flank of the second line. This is all going to be significant in a second, I promise. Seventh cohort is another weak cohort, trainees, raw recruits. Eighth cohort, you want select troops, is what they say. Again, like Vegetius doesn't go into a whole lot of detail here, so we're kind of filling in the blanks a little bit as we're going through. Um, but again, select troops are, they're not quite good enough to be in your fifth or your first cohort, but they're still pretty darn good. And so they're going to go here in the eighth. The ninth, again, is weak, trainees, raw recruits. And then the tenth, you have your good troops. Here we've got our C students, our ones who are above passing, but not by much. And they are the left flank of the second line. So these numbers are significant because remember, I believe it was in the first episode of this book, we had talked about moving from like marching columns to lines of battle, right? And so when they're marching in the columns, this is the order in which they march. One is in the front, the 10th is in the back. So you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 in order marching to wherever they're going to fight because it's a nice long little snake. It's very maneuverable. Now they get to the battlefield and when they deploy into lines of battle, that first cohort, remember the veterans, that Malarian cohort takes a right and marches at a 90 degree angle. So does the sixth cohort. And so what you get is these two lines where once there was one, it's broken. And now they're side by side, parallel facing the enemy. And you've got your first and your sixth on that right flank and your fifth and your 10th on the left flank. And so you've got your front line and your reserve all set up right there. Correct. Now, again, these are not lines that are one person thick. These are lines that are several, several, several people thick in of themselves. So we're not dealing, these are not flimsy lines that we're talking about. This is entire cohorts that are marching. So, you know, roughly a tenth of the legion. So, yeah. This is the way it deploys. And while I don't know of any unit that you goes from line of that goes from columns to line of battle and has enough troops to actually like organize like this, the way that it's organized in terms of who is put where is absolutely useful to what we do. In term like whether you're doing intellectual wargaming or phys or, or physical wargaming, the the kind of the point of the matter here is that you really don't you want an even distribution. You want an even distribution of your good players. When we were talking about this, we kind of, instead of like strong and weak, we went with vet and noob. 
Yeah. Just because, you know, the veteran's more likely to be a better player. Yada, yada, yada. The vet noob, vet noob, vet noob lineup is really good, and it's not commonly done in basically any realm I've ever seen. It is almost a subconscious Im- Im- like imperative that veterans will usually clump up together and that will leave the noobs all clumped up together. So what you'll get is one extremely strong flank and one extremely weak flank. Even uh, Frederick would have balked at the distri- dist- like uneven distribution of skill right there because even though Frederick liked a strong and a weak side in order to pull his obliques, his weak side wasn't necessarily all the new people and all the people that like all the like and, and, and reduced in numbers. It was just the side that was supposed to give ground while the strong side swept up and around. And it's really understandable and easy to do because, you know, you'll be like, oh, man. Turkey and Kaji are going on that side. We need to reinforce that side. And then they reinforce a little bit. Then you reinforce a little bit. And suddenly you have all the heavy people on one side or everyone goes, man, we have just been grinding each other to dirt let's go up against the other and we just kind of like flip sides so it's noobs versus vets instead of noobs versus noobs and vets versus vets but if you have that balance instead you can still do the hammer and anvil but it's much nicer to your new people they'll learn much better they'll be more involved you won't end up with all the vets dead and like three new people who don't know what they're doing like long distance tapping making the battle last forever and again, this this even distribution also makes it so that it, it there's uh, there, there's other uh, ways that we subconsciously divide ourselves that are kind of counterproductive. Another way that I've seen it done is that the noobs will kind of gravitate toward the flanks uh, because they're they're they don't like the the press or the uh, kind of chaos of line fighting, and so a lot of the noobs I know I did this will gravitate oh, either toward. It toward the flanks or toward the rear in order to avoid that. And what that does is you put all of your inexperienced people in places that are extremely high risk. Again, there's a reason that Vegetius has this organized the way he does because the two most dangerous points, or there's three dangerous points on a line, the center and both sides. Those are the most dangerous points on any line. And so you really want your best people evenly dispersed between those points. And also in the back, because remember, this isn't this isn't just one one deep. Because I've also seen it where like you've got a really shallow formation, and you've got like maybe a few new people in the back line. The enemy gets a few flankers around, and new people may not have the timing, may not have the knowledge or the self confidence to call out the fact that those attackers are coming. If you or me are in the back line, thumbs, and we see somebody coming, the whole field's going to know about it. Oh yeah, the whole field, the whole field, everybody, <laughs> because we've 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 got it wrong so many times that we know the the dangers of of not doing it right and so we're, we've gotten very good at calling that out a lot of new people are not as good at calling that kind of stuff out so if you if you have these large clusters of new people that's going to be your weakest point you're going to be developing these weak points subconsciously and not able to plan for them well and this will come up a little more later but it kind of leaves them out in the cold yes. they don't learn as well they're less likely to stick around if they're not learning as well yep and and yeah so this inclusion uh, helps out and and people are so much more useful when their confidence is there like if you've got this group of new people that is facing down a group of veterans they may have the numbers and they may actually have the ability to take those veterans but unless they have the confidence and the knowledge they're not gonna necessarily act upon that opportunity now you mix in some vets and some noobs now the, the vets are going to be able to be there and be like hey we've got numbers and we've got skill let's move on them and so the noobs are like hey you know the vet says it's good to go let's go and so that fills them with confidence and so they're actually able to perform at the level that they want to perform at 
yeah, we got this. Let's do this. You know, <laughs> that's going to work so much better. Yep. Yep. And so, and again, this is, and this doesn't even necessarily be, need to be units. This doesn't even need, even need to be realm battles. You can just do this on sides that are absolutely like, it, it's just, you know, you, everybody who's fighting lined up in a line, you went one, two, one, two, one, two, divided people up. You're on a team with random people, but you know, a few people, like, you know, where the good people are. And at that point you're like, okay, cool. Um, Hey, Instead of grouping up, let's spread out. You take the center, you take this flank, I'll take this flank, we'll meet in the center. I guess it's actually something that TF and I have started doing a little bit, is uh, is not being on the same side, but being like, hey, I'll be on the left, you'll be on the right, oh, yeah. I'll see you on the other side sort of thing. And it, it, it works a lot better than just doing the weak side, strong side, I think. I'm, I'm sometimes very much in favor of strong side, and, but even then, as we said, we're not like completely abandoning the right side. So, right, yes. right. Yeah, and, and it just allows for tactical flexibility. It allows for increased tactical flexibility, which we always like to have. Yeah, I, anything else uh, to say on that? That's basically the, the organization of the Legion in terms of like where you're putting people, right? Yeah, it's a good, you know, this is how it's set up. Here's how you want it set up and started. But uh, I guess we should probably also look at uh, what makes things fall apart. Yep, decay. The decay of a Legion or the decay of a unit or realm is absolutely a... I mean, entropy takes us all, right? Everything is bound for the grave, but we're all trying to fight, stave it off as much as possible. We want our, our units, our games, our, our teams to be around as long as possible. And so what are the suggestions from the ancients on doing this? The first one is retention. And we kind of touched on this a little bit before with the idea that people are going to move around. Just because you, you join a unit when you're younger doesn't mean that you're going to vibe with that unit when you get older or that the spirit of that unit is going to stay the same. I joined units that, like, when they were smaller, I was like, hey, I really enjoy this unit. I'm enjoying the people in this unit. We work well together. And then it got a huge influx of new blood. The spirit of the unit changed, and I didn't vibe with it yeah. as well anymore. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, we, we tend to sometimes treat it almost like a betrayal when someone leaves, maybe joins a different unit. And there are good ways and bad ways of going about that, but stuff changes over time. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. And there's a reason that I refer to this as a sport. Like a, a lot of mm -hmm. people, there's, there's this ongoing argument about whether it's a sport or a hobby or a what, blah, 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 blah. And the reason I view it as a sport is because our units are, are a lot like sports teams and people move around where they're presented with opportunities or where they're presented with, you know, better, a better flow for what they do. I, there's very few sports players that spend their entire careers on just one team. Most of them move around at least a little bit before they find a good fit or they find somebody that's going to appreciate them to the level they want to be appreciated. And we don't necessarily hold it against them, do we? Like, that's just business. No. That's, just, that's just the way it works. And so in this particular case, thinking about this in terms of like a sports kind of thing, like we're all playing a sport together, because again, we're not taking oaths, right? It makes it a, lot, a little bit easier, but you still want to do the retention thing. You still want to give people reasons to stay around. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you can keep people, you definitely want to keep people. And, and that's kind of what the rest, uh, a lot of these points a little bit later on touch on that. But retention is one of the hardest things in any organization. Like one of the hardest jobs in the, in the actual army is that of the retention officer. Because you you've got the job of convincing people to stay someplace that they, you know, they've been dreaming about getting out of. Most people, when they're in, are like, man, all I want to do is be able to sit on my back porch and, and make a cheeseburger whenever I want one and grow my hair out and grow my beard out and go fishing. Like, that's what they want. And then the retention officer's job is to be like, well, 
I want to stay. You sure, you don't want to shave your head and go to basic training, like. And they and, and they're offering money. You know, these are this is and this is this is a hard job for folks who are being able to offer benefit packages and, and money. And so, for those of us within Bell, like we do have to make it a a, a thing that we're an attractive place for people to be. There's got to be a reason people want to stay. Yeah. And, and, and that can be for different people, whether it's the level of involvement that you have that people are really into, or whether it's the level of training that you do, or the, the kind of prowess, whatever it is. Like, there needs to be something that, that drives people to kind of be there. Community. Community is the absolute biggest one. That's for huge. This. Yep, it's absolutely huge. So yeah, retention can be a cause of decay, obviously. People just leave. People leave a realm, or they leave a unit, and, uh, or, they, or they leave a, a team or a club. And uh, it's they it's just, have a kid and leave the sport like that happens too. Again, it's not necessarily because they wanted to switch to another a team. Even it sometimes it's because they got a job that you know keeps them from being able to come to practice or events, or they had a child that they now are now up to their ears with chores taking care of. There's a lot of reasons why retention doesn't necessarily always work out. So don't don't. I guess what we're saying is don't always take it personally. You are going to have people come and go. Definitely try to keep people. But recognize that permanence is not possible here. Mm, yeah. And and welcome people back, too. Like, make it fun for them when they come back. Not like, hey, where have you been? Because uh, one will keep them coming back and the other will keep them not coming back. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so with this idea of retention, of course, you've got people who are leaving for various reasons, whether joining other teams or whether they're, uh, you know, leaving the, the, the sport or the community or what have you or always need or, or whether just getting old, whether they're just getting old and they can't fight or they can't play anymore. You know, you've got to have ways of replacing your troops. And so uh, recruitment and replacement is also a huge part of this. And so you have to be careful with this, though. You can't just go all willy-nilly. I've absolutely seen units that in an effort to just get pure numbers, they neglect the idea of quality or of, like, if they're bringing in people who are actually good for the unit. I have made this mistake before. Like me specifically. And it can cause a lot of disruption. It can cause units to break apart. Like I've absolutely seen units fracture because you'll get like one large faction and another large faction. And they'll be like, ah, oh, we have totally different visions for this. And you'll end up with a smaller unit than you had to begin with. Yeah. And sometimes that's better and sometimes it breaks apart. Yep. And so there, you always have to have a way of bringing in new people. You have to, and it's going to be different based on kind of who you are and what your message is and and kind of how you recruit. I know here in, in Stygia, because we are small and removed, our main recruiting methods are through the university and through the high schools. Yeah. And so uh, our active presence in both of those institutions on campus, doing the demonstrations like uh, in, in like the quad and in the, in the high school and uh, giving the club, giving the opportunity to the students, uh, those things are very, very important. If we were to stop doing those things, our recruitment always takes a hit when we do. And to uh, think of retention there, in a lot of those cases, we are going in knowing that these people have a kind of predictable timeline of how long they're going to be active. Right. Right. Because not, I mean, it's, Missoula is an expensive town to live in if you don't have the right kind of job. And so most people either want to leave to either seek schooling or, or work elsewhere. So the majority of the people who we get in our realm are transitory. Yeah. Two to four years. And that's okay, because every now and then, like one out of ten, we'll stick around. 
And that's awesome. It's worth it for that one out of 10. And even those, those other ones, those other nine that leave for whatever reason, you know, we got two or four, four years of hanging out with them, you know, getting the word out there. Tend to like them. Some of them keep doing Bell in other realms or whatever. Like it's not, we have this tendencies. I'm making Bell sound really petty and it's not actually for the most part, but we have this tendency sometimes to think of like, oh, well they quit playing. So like the time they played didn't matter or something like that. Like, oh, they're not part of the sport anymore. So it doesn't matter. And that's not necessarily true. Because, you know, the time we had them is still great. The only issue I have is when somebody tries to strut in and assert authority that they no longer have. Like, that's my my big issue with that. Or if somebody was, like, a big deal back in the when and had, like, a reputation for being a star. And then okay, they come back and they're, and they're kind of <laughs> rusty and they're like, I still want to be treated awesome. It's like, yes, uh... Uh, it, it is great that we had you in the time. But if you don't stay relevant, you can't expect to be considered relevant. So, like, it... Your time, the time that you were there isn't less important because you're not here now, but your importance to the now is different. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. So yeah, replacement. You got to replace because you're going to lose people for a plethora of reasons. Uh, Again, in actual warfare, it would be from death primarily. Dysentery, a lot. But thankfully for us, it's usually banal things like I got a job someplace else. Or something like that. Or I or I just, you know, I wanted to switch units and I just don't vibe anymore. So because of that, our approach is a little bit different. So when we're talking about this retention, keeping people around, there's there's several things that lead to the breakdown of this retention and people just kind of wanting to leave. Because I think just about everybody, no matter what it ends up looking like in the specifics, in the general, people want to be a part of an effective, supportive, and dynamic unit. Right? Like that, and kind of across the board. What that looks like is different for everybody, but you want to be a part of something that works and that works together. And so one of the big things that starts to destroy an organization from within, no matter what that organization is, is laziness. In the, in the book, he refers to this as the duty being too hard. Um, but we kind of, we kind of chalk this up to laziness because this can occur in, in like in several different ways, either it can like breed a culture of laziness of, a, of of everybody feeling like, well, no, I did mine. I don't need to do anything anymore. And so you just get this entire group of people who aren't doing anything or where the chores or the work is falling to just a very few people. Or only the new people. Or only the new people. And, uh, and yeah, and so in this case, in this laziness, you'll see people starting to splinter off, not wanting to be involved as much anymore. Because, yeah, that's not fun. It's not fun to, to go someplace and feel like you're the one doing all the work or conversely to go someplace and feel like nothing ever gets done because things need to be done depending on, on what, where you're at in terms of climate. Like I know, like I, I've been at campsites where they're wet enough to be able to have a fire 24 seven. And so somebody's got to be chopping the wood for that fire, making yeah. kindling for that fire. And if just one person is doing that and fighting on top of that, they're going to have a really sore back by the end of the week. So it's good to help them out a little bit. Dishes are another big one. Dishes, you burn out quick doing dishes, no doubt, or any of it really, or or, or the or when you when it comes to like event management, you know, if you don't have enough heralds, if you don't have enough uh, runners, if you don't have enough of anything, uh, if there's not enough people to do the work, or if those people are lazy and not doing the work, it really puts a damper on everything. I mean, I th- I'm sure we've all been someplace where we we could pick up on the lack of work ethic, and it, it really brought a negativity to the place. Right? Oh, absolutely. So. Laziness, 
is is huge. And 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 before we move on, I do want to say one more thing. Everybody's going to be able to contribute in their own way. To, oh yeah. Like to expect everybody to be able to have the physique to be able to chop wood um, and have that be their most useful thing is not necessarily fair. There's going to be people who have different health issues or or body types that aren't as fit for some things as other people are. And so it's good to, everybody needs to contribute, no doubt, but people should be allowed to contribute in the ways that they can best. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is not something we're being paid to do. It's generally something we're paying to do. So uh, the expectations are a little different. Yeah, if you've got a, an amazing cook, like if you know one of your unit mates is an amazing cook, don't put him on gate duty. Don't do that. Do yourself a favor and put him in the kitchen. Yeah, unless you, unless they don't want to be in the kitchen. But I know for us, like we've got a, a cook who comes with us, Johnny Ringo. Oh my gosh. You know, people talk about that. They'll be like, hey, Johnny Ringo's going to be at this event. And people will be like, I wasn't going to go because I was busy, but now I'm not busy no more because <laughs> Johnny Ringo's going to be there. But now I'm not busy, yeah. Yeah, so so this is also a way to prevent laziness. Just make sure people are doing what they are best suited to do. The next thing is a lack of training. He refers to this as your arms being too heavy. Arms being like your arm, like your weapons being too heavy. And for us, this, this is interpreted as a lack of training. If you're on the field and if at any point you feel like your weapons are too heavy for you to be able to fight effectively, that is because you have not trained to be at that point, you know, and, and that will cause things to break apart really quick. I, I've actually been a part of a unit, um, where the fighting absolutely took a slide and it was really hard to, and, and they were effective in other ways. They were incredibly effective in other ways, but they hadn't focused on recruiting fighters in a while. And so it was really hard to be proud, I guess, of a lot of, of, of the unit or to want to, or want to push in that way. Cause I wanted to be good at fighting. I wanted to be a, a good presence on the field, but anytime I was on the field, I was alone. Yeah. That gets, it's exhausting. It's just depressing. Yep. And so it, it, again, it's putting that, that duty on other people, but uh, this is also, and, and I know, I know that there are units out there that are not fighting focused. So this, this criticism isn't necessarily for you guys. You have different ways to keep your, your skills fresh, right? But for a fighting based unit, anybody who's got that kind of at the forefront of their mind, a lack of training will absolutely make it difficult. Like I've, I've absolutely noticed amongst the Warhammer players too, people who play every single weekend don't have an issue with a game that like ends up taking longer than normal. You know, like I've had games that go 12 hours before because somebody's using a, an army they're unfamiliar with or they're not uh, totally fresh, fresh on their rules or whatever. Yeah, I've, I've had games go 12 or 13 hours. But at that, that time, I was absolutely up a wall. Like I was, but I was playing games every single weekend at that point. And so it wasn't bothering me. Like as long as I got a dinner break in there, I was like, I'm fine. I can, I can keep going. I sit down for half the time well, I, or more than that usually. Cause like I have my moves planned out ahead of time. I get up, do all my stuff. And I'm like, all right, cool. You take your 45 minute turn and I'm just going to chill here. But like they get, <laughs> but people get so fatigued, you know, like, especially like, and, and even if a game goes four or six hours, people really start to get fatigued at a tournament right? Like you go to a tournament, you're playing two or three games in a row, people get fatigued. And so having that practice, like being like, nope, I, I train for harder than I want to be able to perform on the field. That's, that's important. You know, we have a, a, a buddy down in Idaho, Sir Rem, who has his squires climb a mountain in chainmail. Yeah. Having done mountain hikes in armor, that's, oh boy. 
It's good training. It's great training. And will you ever have to climb a mountain on a battlefield? Probably not. Probably not. But will that cardio benefit you? Oh, absolutely. Because have other people on that battlefield climbed uh, mountains in their armor? Probably not. You and I have talked about it before, being on that trail crew, carrying 50 pounds of stuff wherever you're going. You get to the battlefield and suddenly I'm just like, I can go for hours. Uh, any any kind of hardcore cardio training will do nothing but good things for you. Especially that weight training like I was talking about in the last episode. Uh, adding weights to your workout will, will intensify your workout and make it easier to perform the task without the weights and I, I like one-on-one -on -one fighting. So if you're wanting to have the, the, like a really good endurance for field fighting, one of the best ways to do that is to just do a lot of one-on-one -on -one fighting because the intensity in a one-on-one -on -one fight tends to be far more than that in a field fight. You know, you're just going, you're going, okay, tap, fight, tap, fight. And it's, and it's moving very quickly. The fights typically last between five and 10 seconds. I would reckon like max. Whereas like when you're on the field, the actual battlefield, it doesn't usually happen in that intensity. You're usually sitting there and you're, you're, you'll be walking to a place, maneuvering, maneuvering. You'll get there and you'll be waiting for your opportunity, maybe throwing a few tester shots. And then like the real action happens, the crunch happens, and then you'll walk to someplace else. And like, there's a lot of times for breaks. There's a lot of times to kind of catch your breath and, and get your energy back that you don't necessarily have when you're doing really dedicated one-on-one -on -one sparring. And so that's a really good way to, to drive up your, your ability on the proper field because you're not going to get that intensity typically on a bigger field. Absolutely. So uh, if, if you are feeling as though you're underperforming, it's from a lack of training. So get on that mountain, start reading your rule book, whatever the case may be. Uh, but make sure that those arms are not heavy when you go to pick them up. The next one is a lack of proper incentives. He says that the rewards are distant. And I took this to mean like a lack of proper incentives. I've, I've been in actually a couple of different units where, again, we don't get paid, right? There's no pay scales in Belagarth. There's no, like, I mean, I guess if you're a Warhammer 40k player and you're one of the, like, the top tops who, like, ranks often in the big, like, tournaments, you can definitely get paid for it. Yeah, but you're like half a percent of players that play 40k in that Exactly. Case. The majority of us are not going to make a paycheck <laughs> doing, doing 40k. And kind of in that same note, we're not getting paid to do bell. So the monetary incentive that you would normally use as, as like a, a motivating factor for a soldier is not there. For us, it typically is any sort of, there's, there's perks to being a part of certain units, but then there's also command. The authority and the respect that comes with any sort of command position is, it was one of the few incentives that we can often offer as a unit or as a realm. And so if those positions are prohibitively hard to get to, or if there is a unfair advantage, so like for instance, there was a, a unit that I was a part of where there was a series of trials that you had to pass in order to even qualify to be one of the on-field leaders. The folks who had founded the unit and made these trials had not passed them themselves. That never rolls well. It required the rest of us to do so. Now, I, I think... If I've heard correctly recently, they've, they've been going through and, and doing them to try to like increase the respect that people have for them and kind of take away from this problem. Good for but them. It was a real problem. You know, it was a real problem for me because like, I was like, okay, if I can never attain where they're at simply because they were here first, but like, no matter how hard I work, I'll never be there. Why? Why would I try? Yeah. What's like, the point? Am, why am I going up at that point? And so that, that, or, or if, if it's a, a like a, 
if it's not a meritocracy, if it's based on whether or not, because I've, I've also been in a unit where it was totally based on whether or not you were in good with the unit leader. And if he didn't like you for whatever reason, you were not going to do well. Didn't matter how hard you worked, didn't matter how hard you tried or got along with the other unit members, he ruled with an iron fist and, and that was that. And so that didn't work very well either. It drove a lot of people away because it was like, well, you know, I don't necessarily want to kiss up to you constantly, but if I don't, um, I have no reason to stick around. Yeah. Yeah. I've not been in one of those units before, but I've seen many of those units fall apart. And we get around, there's ways to get around this sort of thing. Like, and not all units have a strict hierarchy or an authority structure. Like we've talked about before, the Dark Angels don't. Nor do the Gelf. You and I both joined like non-hierarchy units. So it's really funny that this is the chapter we're talking about to me. And so, and so for us, like this, the, like the, the, the incentives are different. You know, the rewards are different for us because there are no command positions that are offered. We, we have a leader of the moment in the Dark Angels. And that's kind of the way we get around that laziness factor too, is because, you know, it's not, it's not just one person doing all the work. It's if somebody notices something needs to be done and says, hey, I'm leader of the moment. We're all doing this. If you're not already busy, that's what you're doing. That's just our unit culture. And, and we check to see that you're on board with that mindset before you go from being a prospect to a recruit. And so that also helps here too. Like if you know that a person is good working within that, that structure, more power to it. More power to it. So yeah, if if you if there are rewards, make sure they're not too distant. And again, we got to make sure that people have a reason to stick around and still perform. And the last cause of decay is the buzzkill. Uh, and and uh, in the book, he says this is when discipline is too severe. But I, I you can really condense that into the idea of the buzzkill. We have all known the buzzkill. You know, the buzzkill is the one who takes it entirely too seriously. You know, is entirely too up people's rears about issues that don't necessarily need to be taken that intensely, who is yelling constantly or, or letting things flip them out or whatever, comes down way too hard on any sort of transgression, yells at people if they don't show up to a practice or something like that. Like, again, you know somebody like this. Basically, the entire point of this whole episode is don't be this guy. Don't be this guy. Yeah, because this person will drive people away from your realm or away from your unit very very quickly. One of the, the key things that we do in Stygia here is a lot of these class things that we're offering are optional. You know, yeah. If you want to come and march drill, we're going to offer a class for you to come and march drill. If you want to come and learn crafting stuff, we're going to absolutely offer a, cl a class for you to come and learn crafting stuff. None of them are going to be required, however, because there are going to be people who just do not want to. They don't want to. And it's a massive buzzkill. Yeah, let them have their fun. Yep. This is not a real army. <laughs> so yeah I, I don't know I'm not sure there needs to be much more said uh, or more detail on that particular person because again we all know a buzzkill and uh, we know that that buzzkill drives people and, and there's also other ways to be a buzzkill and not just be the discipline severe I've, I've definitely known realms that have had problems with cheaters cheaters that drive away fresh uh, prospects or recruits because they don't want to play against a cheater you know so that's a buzzkill I'm sure there's others yeah, there, yeah, the whole range of people you don't want to deal with. Don't be those people. Don't be those people. Yeah, be the person you want to deal with in the organization. Be the, be the, like, and again, leaders lead. Leaders do by, leaders, like, are leading by doing the thing. They don't stand there and tell other people to do stuff. A leader does the thing and says, come with me. A boss 
sits there on a chair and says, hey, go over there and do that thing. We all have bosses that we deal with throughout the week. Nobody wants another boss. Yeah, we don't need more. I don't think anybody wants... Leaders, we're all... As humans, we all love a good leader. But none of us want another boss. <laughs> Not a single... At least I don't. No. Too many bosses. So yeah, that's that's kind of the organization of a, of a legion and kind of, the, kind of an idea of how to apply that to when you're approaching a battle in a battle line. Again, that idea works just as well for 40K. When you've got like the flanks reinforced and the center reinforced, you can have a lot of room to maneuver there. And of course, we talked about the, the decay that can occur within these organizations. Do you have anything else you want to add on that, Thumbs? No, I think we're good. Right on. Well, then let's move on to our next section, which is going to be on officers within the Legion. Now, again, when we're talking about these officers within the Roman Legion, we acknowledge that the vast majority of positions within any sort of intellectual or physical wargaming, you're not going to have all of these because these are specializations that are required when you've got a thousand people per section and then like a bunch of those sections. And so, again, a lot of these are very specific, but we all have somebody like this uh, kind of in our unit, these distinctions. And so I thought it would be kind of cool to go through and, and discuss these. And, and again, any quote-unquote officers in the Legion enjoy certain duties or privileges that others do not. And this exists everywhere, even, even within like the Dark Angels, uh, even though we don't necessarily have a strict leadership position, the voices of those who have been there the longest and have been here the whole time definitely are weighed a little stronger than, than people who are brand spanking new. Yeah, the the proven. Yeah, everybody has an equal vote, but when it comes to like who's going to be listened to, that privilege obviously goes to those who have had more time and grade and experience in the position. So we just kind of wanted to go through these real quick and, and talk about where they might apply in, in some of the units that we've observed. So a tribune is an appointed position. This is somebody who commands, but they do so because they were appointed by the emperor themselves. Uh, again, we don't have an emperor necessarily within Belagarth unless you uh, count Sir Kyrian or Sir Cedric, the year that he was emperor. But uh, it's not a technical position. They don't actually name anybody to positions. Well, and Tribune was a very class one, too, because they would have been like a senator given a Tribune position. Yep. yep. Uh, and considering we don't have the same kind of class structure, definitely not the same thing here. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't exist to the same degree. Like, I, I don't know of many, like most of the units that I know of, like, it's not, you're not appointed to a leadership position. You have to, there, there's a meritocracy of some sort, some trials or something you have to pass in order to move up through the ranks. So this one doesn't occur as much. The second tribune does. So this is a, another sort of commander, but this is the person or the commander who's had the longest time in grade. Right. And there's there's a lot of different places. Like I just said, in the Dark Angels, we kind of had an, have an unofficial second tribune like Cutter, for instance, like she's been around since the beginning and her voice is weighed extremely strongly. Uh, Shadow is in that same mindset because, again, people just respect them and they've been in that grade for so long that, you know, they, they've got that position of authority just because. When Dop speaks, we listen. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have the same going with with some folks in yours, too. Um, and so again, this, this occurs in a lot of different places. I know, I know of a few units that won't promote somebody to a leadership position unless they've been around for a while, unless they've been in for a certain period of time or, or they're the most experienced in that particular field or whatever the case may be. So this one absolutely occurs too. 
or denarii command orders or divisions. So these are going to be like uh, your, your smaller group uh, commanders. So where at the very top you have like a unit leader who is in charge of absolutely everything, your ordinary might be your like realm specific leaders. So like mm -hmm. a, the, you know, the, the leader of, of this realm, which is like the branch of this, the national group. A lot of times there won't even be a specific leader in that realm, but the person that's like, oh, hey, we need to remember to do this thing. Right, right. Uh, the whip uh, yeah. could also be uh, kind of in this regard. And and people, there's also a secondary, I know in the Urukai they have the Ravagers are basically, they're, they're like mid-level commander sort of thing and they command like smaller sections on the field. But they've also got a larger group and so they can they can have that kind of sub-delegation. Yeah, they can have sergeants. Yeah, yeah, and they need it too. So yeah, this is, this is somebody who still commands a fairly large force, but uh, not the overall force. Then you've got your eagle bearers and your image bearers. We don't necessarily have that this much in physical wargaming, at least like not in Belagarth. Now within like intellectual wargaming, you know, you've got like your appointed tribune could be the person you say, that's my warlord. Your second tribune is like your most valuable character that's on the, on the field. Your ordinary or like lieutenants or captains that are kind of commanding the smaller sections that you send out with smaller sections. But the, this one absolutely has a crossover in 40k in that you have your ancients. Right, like a, especially in a Space Marine chapter, the ancient is the one that carries the standard. Um, sometimes the remains of a hero into battle. It inspires everybody around them. But I don't see many people doing this in Belagarth. No, generally we're short enough on people that we don't want to take the manpower it would take for one person to run around with a flag. Right. It's one thing when it's a thousand people, but right. In the East, I've seen it on a couple of battlefields when I went to Oktoberfest and when I went to Ragnarok. Uh, both of those events had, there were units who had somebody who did that, but they were also very large units. Like the Kushi is, they are, they're a very large unit. And so they can, they can spare. It becomes very nice for organizational structure. Once you reach a certain size, uh, the closest I've kind of seen is people who have, uh, I can't think of what they're called, but they're those back flags that samurai wear sometimes. I can't, I don't know the name off the top of my head either, but I know what you're I'm talking about. I'm way too white to pronounce it correctly anyways. <laughs> but those awesome samurai back flag things, they'll try to remember what they're called for the next episode. And that way people can still fight with them, but also have the kind of thing. Or I've been, I'll put a uh, flag on my spear and I can just kind of like hold it up. But then I also use it as a spear, yeah. As dual purpose at that point. Yeah, it's not as much an organizational tool uh, once you're fighting with it. But yeah, for the for when you're moving from place to place, yeah, it can, it can kind of serve a similar purpose there. But again, this would have been, th these are people who are honored within these positions. It's not just, hey, you pick up a flag, like within like the Roman legion, if you're carrying the eagle or you're carrying a image or a flag, that's a that's a position of honor. Like you're you, trusted that's, with the symbol of power of Rome. That's insane. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And it, again, the same thing happens. Like I said, when I when you see it in like a Space Marine chapter, the ancients are some of the most respected members of a chapter. And so it's a, the the theory is a little bit different. If I were to do this in Bell, I would probably give the flag to one of our newer members. Like it's literally the reverse in my mindset because I'd like I'd, I'd be thinking, no, I I need. Like my veterans to be carrying weapons, you know. Here's your trial by fire. Run around with a flag. Oh, that'd actually be kind of a fun, uh, like, unit membership requirement or something. Like a certain number of battles carrying the standard or something. 
I don't think I'll get it to pass in the Dark Angels. If you want to use that idea for the Gelf, that'd be great. <laughs> it would not work, but it'd be hilarious. I'm done. It would be hilarious. This, this It's a unit that requires a little more organization than you and I went with. That's very true. Uh, you know, if there's any BOF guys listening, mm. hey. That's a super be, BOF thing to do. That might be, be right up your alley, yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah. That's that's what uh, the Eagle Bears and the Icon Bears do. The Optino... Oh, boy. Optinones right, are subaltern officers that are chosen by their superiors to act in case of injury, sickness, or accident. When we talked about Der Demarion uh, a few episodes ago, they do this within their, their realm structure. Each of their realm leaders, their, their president, their vice president, treasurer, uh, on and on, they have a shadow. They've got like an underling who, who kind of is uh, their, gosh, what is the, the drama term for it? The uh, understudy. Understudy, exactly. They've got an understudy there who is kind of learning the ropes and is prepared to step up if something should happen to the person who is currently in charge. And again, Dirtamaria is a very large realm, and so they have the people to be able to do this. If we were to do this in Stygia, that would mean that probably the entire realm would be then involved in realm. <laughs> uh, Stygia doesn't have it that specific, although we do have our list of like, they're not realm leaders, but they run certain things. Sure. And we know who would step up as an interim realm leader until a new realm leader could be selected, et cetera, et cetera. Like, right. We've got our we got our lines of secession, as yes. it were. But yeah, having having somebody as a second isn't a bad idea. You know, again, it's not something we don't have a this kind of an organizational structure in the Dark Angels to apply this. But if you've got somebody who's trying to learn to be a, a, a battlefield commander, this is a really good way to give them that experience. Watch somebody who knows how it's done and kind of learn in the moment from from that experience it's a really good idea i mean we do it with archers a lot just learning how to shoot a bow let alone that's a good point running people like that's a good point wander around with this archer for a round or two and then you can then we'll let you go yeah yeah so again we do do it in some ways but not quite in the same tess Arari are messengers and not so much important like it, when it comes to realm stuff most of us are tesserari or our cell phones because yeah. we're just going to be sending texts or going checking the Facebook page or whatever the case may be. However, at an event... Runners are just worth their weight in gold. Oh my gosh, yes. Because uh, I don't... I know personally, I try to check my cell phone as little as possible because I'm trying to, like, you know, be away from whatever stressors or whatever whatever the world is. But at, a, like, a proper event, there there is so much going on. There's so much coordination that needs to be done that runners are an indispensable asset to any event whether it's uh running uh like orders from the event coordinator to their their selected department heads or whether it's running information from those department heads back to the event coordinator you know there's a lot of information that needs to be spread amongst people there so again when you're when you're looking at that kind of organization it's definitely important. Same in when you're talking about like the messengers uh, between uh, like calling out orders. If your unit is large enough, like the Urukai are, to need somebody to holler out orders down the line, then there needs to be not everybody like for them. Everybody becomes a tesserari. If you if they the scream, you know, eyes right, it is then kind of their unit culture for eyes everybody. Right. Eyes right. Yeah, to scream your eyes right, and so. There, there is a place for it on the field too um, but it's not as important like for us it's mostly about those runners which are which are crucial to the running of any event 
Mm-hmm. I love knights always are like, oh, I'll use my squires as runners, but squires are always off so busy doing other stuff that like you have to find a runner to find your squire runner. Right. <laughs> a runner for the runner. But yeah, so, so and, and I know some events that'll have people sign up specifically for this. Like some events are small enough that they'll just cry out, I need a runner, and whoever's nearby and spry uh, will volunteer to do so. But there's other events that they are like, all right, we have runners that are scheduled. Like you are on the clock, on the shift to be a runner at this time. You're going to be going and delivering these messages as you need to. And those, those are events like the size of like Battle for the Ring. They yeah. need like official you runners. Need you need know. hardcore communication. Uh, at Chaos Wars, they all, anyone who's on shift has a walkie-talkie on them. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So there's another Tesserari, the little walkie-talkies. Those are great, too. So, yeah, messengers, crucial, uh, important to the command and control aspect of any campaign. Uh, next, we have the Campigne, or also known as the Ante Fignari, or Fignani. Uh, and these are basically like your drill sergeants. Their job is to keep up proper ep- exercise and discipline. I don't know of any units off the top of my head that actually have somebody in this position, but it might not be a bad idea. The closest I can think of is uh, Naga, Sin, and Cadabus have a tendency to do morning yoga. That's true. And they'll like warm up, you know, let's, uh, it's kind of the people that are like, hey, let's go do a warm up or anything like that. We don't have the like, I am dedicated, I am going to run you through and make sure you know how to do everything unit wise. It, right. Which would be another great one for a more organized unit than you and I tend to go for. Um, <laughs> but anything, you know, let, let's get stretched. Let's, uh, oh, hey, I'm going to go around to tell you weapon check is open. Go get your weapons checked. Like, I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. The, 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 the events that I go to that you know, Ashen is at, he will almost always lead like a morning stretch circle with all of us. Like that's that's actually something that's part of... We call it going to church, kind of is 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 part of like our our warm up routine before we go onto the field. Is we kind of go to church, which is strange because I think I'm the only Catholic in the entire group. <laughs> but uh, but that's kind of where we get up our proper exercise and dis- uh, He kind of came up with the unit policy of doing the two v ones as a warm up before we go on the actual field. It's a great way to to just kind of get that intensity in your belly before you actually hit the field, and. Uh, and get used to working. It's the people that get you doing stuff. Yep. Yep. These are going to be your, your Kempigne or your Ente Fignani. Don't, don't call them that. It's going to sound like you're insulting them because no one knows. Ante Fignani. Um, <laughs> it's going to make me sound racist. Um, the next uh, uh, gr- group that we're going to talk about are your Metatores. And these are your uh, folks who go ahead and scout uh, um, for potential camping spots. Again, a crucial thing for the Legion where they would upend their entire camp, move it to a new spot, and set up that camp. They would need to know that that camp was large enough to accommodate them, had the proper defensive considerations. This, This was a very important job. For us, it's usually the person in our group that arrives first at the event. Yeah, first person gets the best site they can get. So you're trying to find the, the site that suits your group the best. Also, could also be the first person on the field. Like I know for us, like the uh, we'll often try to have like three people go up to the field right when fights are starting, especially out east where you have a larger field, because where you start is typically where you're going to be all day. So if you're a part of this unit and you guys start in this corner, guess what? 
Unless you that's, quit the that's field. That's your corner now. That's your corner now. And so sending people to the field to kind of pick out a good spot that isn't too exposed, not a bad idea either. Especially when things are just starting to kick off. And then you can come and join them. Next ones are the Librari. And you may have guessed, but they keep the Legion records. And we have some people like this. I know some units and some realms are more into this than others. Uh, we have uh, Squire Antoinette, for instance, is for like all of Belagarth. She's, she's like a Seneschal. She keeps the records for all of us. Um, different units and different realms do so at different uh, intensities. Webmasters, lore keepers, kind of us now that we're doing this podcast. Yeah, a little, yeah, a little bit us now that we're doing this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, they keep the Legion records. They know who's coming in, who's going out, who gets paid what. That's that. They're the bookkeepers. They're the the knowledge dudes in the Legion. The next group are your Tubasines and the uh, Cornacines and Bucinatores. Yeah, Bucinatores. That's exactly how I pronounced it when I tried to say it. Now, these guys are all kind of lumped into the bard category because they play their respective instruments, which are trumpet, cornet, and the buc- the bushina or the bukina, for commands. As we've talked about before, it's real, real, real important to, uh, especially for a large, large group, in order to be able to, to have those commands. And like all of us know, at least those of us who are from America, are familiar with at least two bugle commands. You know Reveille. Like, even if you weren't in the military. Up, go. Yep, you know what that means. And you also know the somber, retiring sign of respect. The, the taps that is played. Like, almost every American has heard taps, I'm fairly sure. Oh, so, yeah. we're, all, we're familiar with these kind of concepts. But there's, there's dozens of these. Like, if you go back and look at different bugle calls at, at when they were being used, there's dozens of different bugle calls for advance, retreat, flank, you know... Um, for for anything you might need to communicate to somebody on the line. It would have been also just as true in the Roman times, and so they used the same idea. Sun Tzu recommends this. Machiavelli recommends this. Uh, you know, this is... this is Everybody's got some sort of trumpet player. You've got to have a boogie-woogie bugle boy on your team. That's just what I'm saying. Oh, people would hate me for it, but part of me really wants someone to, like... At, like, a big event, not at, like, your small local park get out the trumpet and make sure the people know the like three basic like charge run away regroup well i mean were you were you there for the uh what was it i think it was the second um i think it was my second chaos wars i brought my trumpet to no i wasn't there for that one because i was convinced that people would be okay with me blowing reveille in the morning they were not they were not <laughs> they were not okay with that I, I, I blowed Reveille one morning and had like three camps worth of people shouting shut up at me because <laughs> that was not okay. So yeah, not, maybe don't take this one so literally. Most people are not going to appreciate Le- Reveille. We don't have a hard wake-up time in our community or anything. The next group of people are your Armaturae Duplares. So remember this word Armatura. We had talked about this. This was the one that stumped Thumbs and I that first section. This is sparring. Literally, just the, these are the guys who are the best sparrers, the best fighters, the proven experts uh, in exercise, and they receive double rations. Hey, that's not a bad. Uh, that's not a bad gig. Like I, I like, I would have, I would have liked this deal. By the way, no, I would have I I, been all about this double food for more spars. Yeah, buddy. We were not offered this in the regular army, and uh, <laughs> I definitely would have gone in for it if they were like, "You can take more combat training, and we'll give you more food." I'd have been like, "Yes, put me on that line." I want anyways. Like, 
Uh, that's why I'm here. I'm here for those two things. I'm one of those. I'm, I'm one of those freaks, by the way, that actually enjoys MREs. I know that that's like heresy or whatever, but there's there's quite a few MREs that are very tasty, and, and maybe it's just come because I come from a family that that is cooked fairly bland meals for most of my life. But uh, yeah, you can put Tabasco on anything. I'm just saying. <laughs> Anyways, so you got your armature duplares, your proven experts in exercise who received double portions. We don't necessarily have people who are singled out this way, but absolutely on your team, I bet you can think right now of who your ace is, who the person is that you're going to put in to the hardest spot to get you out of the toughest fight, to to represent you the best in the tournament. You know who your ace is off the top of your mind. That's this person. You know, that's this person. Mensores... Mark out and measure the camp, assigning troops to respective areas. Depending on your size, if, I mean, if you've got like three tenths worth of people coming, you're not going to need that too much. When the Dark Angels camp together, we typically need this. Yeah, when you have 15 tenths of people, get your stuff figured out. Yep, because you want to make sure that you're not blocking the kitchen, that you're not blocking the ways in and out of the camp, that you're not too close to the fire, that you're not too close to the river. Like, there's a lot of things to take into account. And so I really appreciate the people. And again, this is actually something that's fairly organized within the Dark Angels. I was very impressed when I went to Aukfest and we had had people who arrived early, marked out our camp, like knew where everybody was going to need to be, knew our numbers of who was coming in and was staying in the camp and marked out the space we were going to need before other people started getting in there. It was very useful because that was a very crowded event. And we used every out, every inch of that space. So this, this can be very, like if you're, again, if you're going to a smaller event, like out here out West, like, you know, and, and there's, there's going to be, you know, 20, 50, maybe a hundred people there, not as important of a job. If you're going out East, or down to battle for the ring, where you're looking at you know, like somewhere ab- around or above a thousand people, two thousand people, yeah, you're definitely going to want somebody to mark out your camp. If just so you don't run into the issues of uh, issues with your neighbors, yeah, you don't want to have issues with your neighbors. Torcati are marked for bravery on their battlefield. They, they uh, they're named because of the torque, right? They wear a torque to symbolize that they were brave on the battlefield. Think of this like a medal of honor, right? We mark our soldiers still for, for uh, you know, silver star, bronze star, all those sorts of things. These are, these are markations that are given for honor. This is the people that are on the field all day, every day. And sometimes they are marked. Like sometimes, like you might, <laughs> some, sometimes like depending, like I know the, uh, I, I think it's the EBF will mark people for for like for like this particular position i know some people will wear like a, a war braid or something like that to signify a, a bravery maybe it was gifted to them by their unit or by a a friend or something like that see i was just gonna say the scar on my nose but you know that too i mean we, we've all got scars all over our faces and our hands and bodies that kind of mark us out as has having been out there and been in it so yeah uh, again a lot of groups don't necessarily have an official way of doing this, but you're going to know. If you've been around and you've been to a few practices or a few events, you're going to know who your Torcati are on the field because they make themselves known. A legate is the ruler of the whole army, typically a provincial governor. Uh, so in this case, you've got your your unit leader yeah, in charge of the whole gambit. And if that unit leader also happens to be the realm leader, then you've got a direct parallel. Oh, yeah. Uh, legates historically were a source of a lot of problems, but... Hopefully less so in this case. Again, we're dealing with much smaller numbers mm-hmm. and uh, much Way less, less power. corruption. Yep, 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 that too. And then centurions, these are your, uh, we've compared them to NCOs in the past. You know, they're more accurately compared to a warrant officer. 
You know, they have they have a, a promotion scheme that's outside of the regular scheme. They have very specific tasks that they tend to, and they are judged on different criteria than anybody else in the army is going to be judged by. But they command a set number. The number of their name implies 100. This fluctuated at different times in the, in the Legion's history. But we're talking about 100 people uh, being commanded by a centurion. Makes sense. And again, we don't necessarily have somebody for this small of numbers. Like, we don't have the numbers within physical wargaming to necessarily warrant uh, like a, a centurion case in the way that they were depicted here. Yeah, that person would be in charge of like two people. Like, that's not, it's not super helpful. Not super helpful, not super efficient in terms of like actually uh, using your people to the best of their abilities. So yeah, these are the officers of the Legion. And again, you might know a few of these people within your own unit or your own realm and might be able to pick them out on your Warhammer board. But these are, we just thought these were kind of cool and these were positions of honor or privilege within the Roman Legion. Anything else there, Thumbs? Pretty, pretty I think that's. I think that's pretty set up. Uh, it's a whole lot of, we, we got way more out of it than I expected. I remember reading the section and just being like, oh my God, I barely even understood those words. It's a lot of organization. It was a lot of numbers and a lot of organization for this one. It if was, there is anything you guys have learned about me in 40 odd episodes, that is not my skill set. However, it is mine. So we make up for, <laughs> for each other's deficiencies there. Well, yeah, I guess with, with no further ado, we're going to tell you guys all about a typical Space Marine chapter. So usually about three days before we uh, record the episode, like by the latest, by three days, I'm messaging Malark. So uh, I'm being like, hey, what battle are we going to do? Make sure, you know, we have time for all this stuff. And he's like, I have an idea this time. What if, what if we cover the entire like chapter organization of Space Marines? And my first thought was, you know, I'm going to have nothing to say to any of that, right? It's not that you'll have nothing to say. Like, <laughs> you know, and I'm I'm into it. I like the idea. I'm glad. I, as much as the battles are one of my favorite parts of the episode, it's always fun to change things up. But definite one of these that you first mentioned that I'm like, I have to read so many Wikipedia articles in the next like two days. What's nice is that I I have been reading a quite a bit about this for several years, and so I my knowledge is pretty strong when it comes to like the lore and, uh, and, and, and also with this new codex that came out, any of you who's, who've had the new codex, you recognize a lot of this is coming out of that because they give a really brilliant rundown of all of the different organizational factors within the new space Marine codex. So if you haven't picked that up yet and you are a space Marine player, I highly recommend it, not just because you need the rules, but because the, the, the fluff is just so good in this particular one. Well, and, uh, kind of appropriately, because people have been asking me if I was going to pick this up for the... Uh, I got the Imperial Infantryman's Handbook. So, you know, reading Warhammer 40k fluff, I haven't dived into it yet, because, you know, I'm moving houses and all that stuff, but... And it's a very dense book, but... Dense universe. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, interesting to learn some of this stuff, and it actually teaches me stuff about, you know some of my friends in some case, because the BOF rank structure is actually based off of the Warhammer 40k rank structure. And the Warhammer 40k rank structure is kind of based on, or the Space Marine chapter structure is based off of the Roman Legion 
the you know the Brotherhood of the Falcon is basically the Roman Legion, in, or you know, sort of in sort of gray color, but like <laughs> it's gone through a few transitions. But yeah, yeah, yeah but uh, it kind of is. Uh, it explains why I kept thinking of the BOF as I'm reading Vegetius. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely get those vibes myself, and uh, and yeah, it's roughly based on it. And anybody who's familiar with Space Marine lore, you'll know that they do not fight in rigid lines. Like everything about them is about tactical flexibility and taking advantage of every situation how you can, not just like a rigid approach to the battle. And so the the kind of the structure reflects that. It's not exactly like a Roman legion, but it's organized very similarly. And so I thought, you know, there wasn't a, a battle that necessarily came to mind when I was reading through this material, but I thought like these, this there's a direct parallel. You've got, you know, your 10 cohorts over here, and then you've got your 10 different sections of the Space Marine chapter as well. So yeah, I figured that we, we, we kind of talk about that a little bit. And, and if you don't know, you'll yeah, know you after know. we get done. Yeah. So a Space Marine chapter can be either fleet-based or planet-based. Um, my understanding is the majority of them are planet-based, so that means that they've got a whole planet that they kind of rule over. Now, now, of course, the civilian infrastructure and all that sort of thing is independent of them. This is stuff like McCrag? Like McCragan, yep. Like McCrag, like Caliban before it got, you know, blowed up. Uh, Ball for the Blood Angels. Uh, not only is it their, their main fortress, like their main stronghold, but it's also usually their recruiting world as well. This is where they're getting the, uh, the majority of the recruits from. And those recruits are different depending on what that group is looking for. So like if you're um, living on Fenris, for instance, planet where the space wolves are from, they're looking for different attributes and different qualities in their recruits than for, say, the Imperial Fists or the Dark Angels are. Right. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. obviously, they're all looking for somebody who can fight. They're all looking for somebody who can follow orders. They're all looking for somebody who can endure uh, the, the incredibly harsh conditions that they're going to be forced to endure. But in terms of specific personality traits, those are very legion based. They're all looking for for things that kind of fit in. And, and, and the gene seed takes care of some of that, too. Now, if they're planet based, they have this already kind of prepackaged, prepackaged, right? They've already got their planet that they can recruit from and, and they rule over it with literally like little to no interference from the rest of the Imperium. They're just like, ah, space Marines. We're going to let them be, do their own thing. Fleet-based chapters, such as the Dark Angels or the Imperial Fists, have to have a series of recruiting worlds that they visit from time to time. Uh, the Dark Angels, for instance, like to choose feudal worlds or worlds where the technology has not progressed past the point of like feudal technology. So we're talking like castles and lance-wielding knights, no firearms, those are the kind of worlds that they like to recruit from because that gives the mindset that they like. Caliban was very much that way before it, you know, went the way of Caliban. So they're looking to continue the spirit of their chapter in that way. Same thing with the Imperial Fist. They've got their recruiting worlds to set up to recruit the guys that they want. So whether they are fleet or, or uh, planet-based does differ, but they still need to have worlds that they're pulling from and planet-based guys. That's just, that's just where they're at is on that planet or on that moon or wherever, wherever they're located. Am I going too fast for you? I got you. No, here? you're fine. You're okay. fine. And again, uh, thumbs is, is a bit of a neophyte here. And so I've encouraged him to ask any questions along the way that he thinks might come to mind. Cause yes, I'm sorry. I am just absorbing the information. I need to remember to be like, Hey, this is a conversation. <laughs> I know it's hard. Cause I is a, is a, a lot of notes here for sure. So the chapter command, the ones at the very top, uh, you have your chapter master. Now, again, this, this uh, title may vary. 
from place to place, but the official title is cha chapter master. They may have additional titles that are conferred to them as well. Think about like your king. You know, their their biggest name is going to be I'm king whoever, uh, earl of this place, duke of this place, protector of this thing. Like, you know, they, they've got other titles perhaps that are going to come with them, but like the chapter master is the one at top of it all. They command the chapter, they command the fleet and or planet that they're on, and their word is final. I know that we've already compared them to the Legion, but this is, I, I tend to think of the Space Marines as church knights, so this would be like the head of the order. Or, yep. the... or a legate, like if you want to think mm -hmm. of them within like the, 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 the Legion structure, this is a very much a legate kind of idea here, where they're in, they're in command of the army and they also command a, a good chunk of actual territory that they, that they own. And so, yeah, your, your chapter master makes the calls, decides what, um, like, engagements the group is going to be involved in. Because, you know, the, the Imperium can make requests of Space Marine chapters, but they, are, they rarely have the authority to actually issue orders. But they can say, hey, you know, we're experiencing trouble nearby. Can you come help us? And the chapter master is the one who sits there and says yes or no. He also rules on court cases concerning, like, misconduct amongst, like, the members. So, again... This is Big Daddy. This is the the, mm -hmm. the, the very much a, a rigid command structure here. And some some groups have different ways of doing this as well. Like the Iron Hands, for instance, have a triumvirate of Iron Fathers that they have. So three different leaders that are at the top. So it's not necessarily only one, but this is th those are chapter masters still. Here you also have the Honor Guard, whatever um, best elite troops are selected to protect the chapter master and their uh, kind of facilities. And then your chapter... Um, equerries, serfs, and servitors. Anybody who serves the chapter or, or specifically serves the chapter master. Now you're going to notice that serfs and servitors are, are in each of these different places for the most part. And the reason for that is just because a serf is a serf doesn't mean they do all different sorts of labor. A serf may come from a long line of serfs whose entire job, their entire lives, was polishing one space marine's armor. Man, that is the most depressing thing that I've possibly ever heard you that's, say. That's 40K, mate. That's, <laughs> there, there, there is no happy outcome for anybody in 40K. But, but, and so, uh, again, these are, these are serfs. These are servit a servitor is, I don't know if I've actually explained this on the show before. A servitor is somebody who has had half of their brain removed, replaced with wiring, and then they're loaded up with all sorts of different machine parts that they're going to need to accomplish their tasks. Then they're wired into a station, and that's what they do. They have no autonomy. They're the basic builder in the Dawn of War game, if you've yeah. ever played those, the like RTS ones. Very basic. Very basic. Uh, and again, they, 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 are, they do not have higher thinking function. They are designed to serve. So again, yeah, Chapter Command has these two. Uh, guys who are, who are literally, their entire lives are spent polishing the Master's boots. Next, we're going to go to the Armory. Now, I, I know I geeked out a little bit earlier on about the, to the Tech Marines, because I love Tech Marines. I, I love... Space Marines, and I love Adeptus Mechanicus. Therefore, Tech Marines are, like, amazing to me. They're, they're, they're one of my absolute favorite things in 40K. And at the head of the armory is your Master of the Forge. Your, your, this is Hephaestus, basically. Yep. Uh, your, your Tech Marine with the most experience, the most skill, maybe the most time in grade, who runs the, the forge, makes sure that everything gets done, makes sure that things are built and maintained and repaired. The Master of the Forge has a very, very important job. There are other tech marines too. Of course, you've got a whole plethora of tech marines that serve any given chapter. Master of the Forge is just the foremost amongst them. And then they've also got their own serfs and servitors. But under the armory, 
You also have any of your, your vehicles that are going to be used. These are under the direct control of the armory. So here you have your battle tanks, land raiders, war suits, light attack vehicles, transport vehicles, and gunships, all maintained and piloted, um, I think for the most part, by, by groups. Maybe, no, not, not piloted. Pilots come from all over the place, but the responsibility for these vehicles falls to the armory. Next, we're going to go to the Librarius. So again, the armory, that's where the stuff gets made. The Librarius is a lot like you would think it would be, but also very different. So here you find your chief librarian. This is the most powerful and the most knowledgeable, uh, the strongest of the librarians. But of course, there's they others. You usually have like a skull helmet, right? Uh, it depends on the chapter, but blue. The blue armor is typically what denotes uh, a librarian. Um, a tech marine is often denoted by red armor because of their connection to the Martian Brotherhood, to the to the whole idea of uh, being in the Mechanicum. And so they they wear red. The Librarius typically wears blue to distinguish them as being different. And under here, you're, under the Chief Librarian, you have all your epistolaries, your codicers, your lexicanums, your acolytes, uh, and again, serfs and servitors. And all these people, their jobs are to maintain records, much like in the Roman Legion, uh, research things for the future. But the librarians within 40K, within a Space Marine chapter, also have a very different ability in that they are psychers. Um, and now within 40K, if I haven't explained this and, and you're new to 40K, a psyker is somebody who is able to use the warp and bend it kind of to their will. Think of uh, like in a fantasy setting, this would be like a wizard or a mage of some sort, but they're called psychers within um, 40K. And the Space Marines called theirs librarians. And so <laughs> these are not just your, your run of the mill, be, be quiet when you're walking through my building librarians. These are guys who can fry you with your, their mind librarians. Yeah. These are telepathic super soldiers. Yes. This is a very important part of the chapter and, uh, and is often under a great deal of scrutiny because of the powers they wield. The reclusium is next. Uh, anything on those uh, previums, previous ones real quick? Uh, no, I'm actually at this point trying to... I have no idea what the reclusiums are. I have. Well, let's go into the reclusium. So a reclusium is a, a space either on the ship or in a fortress where the chapter keeps its most sacred relics where it keeps the icons and the standards of battle from all of its countless campaigns, uh, where, where anything that denotes honor or integrity or, or any of those things, this, this is the, the trophy hall. This would be kind of like the priests, basically, except, you know, theoretically, Warhammer doesn't have priests, although they super have priests. Well, correct. And, and actually, this is a good time to kind of talk about the difference that most Brace Marine chapters have with the rest of the Imperium. The most of the Imperium, at the time of 40k, worships the Emperor as a god. And the Ecclesiarchy, which is a human organization, is there to, that's the church. It kind of organizes the activities of the faithful and have their own militant orders kind of within them. Most Space Marines do not believe the Emperor is a god. They believe that the Emperor was an incredibly powerful being who, you know, forged the destiny of mankind. They believe that they have to be thankful to the Emperor. They believe that they should pray to the Emperor, but they do not believe that the Emperor is a god. There's a very distinct difference there. Now, there are some obvious exceptions. The Black Templars absolutely believe the Templar, or that the Emperor is a god. Um, and then they have that in the services. But... What happens here is more like a form of ancestor worship for most chapters. The worship, that, because of this, it is. Like the reclusium is like a combination of a cathedral and a trophy hall. And so the reclusiarch and the master of sanctity and all the other chaplains who kind of maintain it 
have the dual purpose of being warriors and also kind of bolstering the chapter. Their, their job is to maintain this space, but also speak words of encouragement and, and tend after the spiritual well-being of the other people in the chapter. So the, the master of sanctity, for instance, is the, he, their job is to maintain the reclusium. They're in charge of the relics specifically. They make sure that they get cleaned and are taken care of properly. And if they do need to be like checked out for battle, that the proper uh, protocols are observed there. Master of sanctity, that is their domain. The reclusiarch is the top of the spiritual hierarchy. The reclusiarch is constantly examining their fellow ba battle brothers for signs of weakness, for signs of battle fatigue, for signs of uh, doubt, for signs of heresy. That's kind of their job. And this is where you see the skull helmet. The, cha the chaplains, uh, and, and, and then all the chaplains kind of have this job as well, uh, much just uh, to a smaller degree, much like the you have a master of the forge and then your tech marines. Over on this side, you have like the reclusiarch, and then you have all the other chaplains underneath them that, that have a very similar job. I I made a, a comparison in my brain, and it is an absolute heresy and abomination. Uh, it's a kind of if Father Mulcahy from MASH was the Terminator. You know, my wife and I just got done watching MASH, and I that that mental image is delightful to me. That's not right? heresy. It's... That's a delightful <laughs> mental image. <laughs> it's so good, and it's so terrible at the same time. Yeah. No, and and but again, when you're thinking about this in terms of space marines, these are often the most some of the most hardcore people in the chapter. Their faith is unshakable. Their their duty is is likewise. Uh, within the reclusium, you will also find a judicar, which is a kind of a new unit with the Primaris stuff that's just come out. But they're a warrior that has taken a vow of silence, and they only speak with their blade. Is kind of the idea. <laughs> this is the most edge lord sentence. But they, like that's what deviates. They're, they're part of the reclusium, but that's what deviates them from the chaplains. The chaplain's job is to be spreading, you know, the good word, keeping their battle spirit, the the spirits up of the chapter, whereas the the judicar speak by doing. Speak by doing. So that's reclusium. The apothecarium. Healers, I'm assuming. Med bay. So we're talking, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is the, this is like, uh, so your chief apothecary, like your chief surgeon, runs the show, and your apothecary would have duties like you would assume. They tend to battlefield injuries, they make sure that people aren't getting sick from diseases, and if they are, they're treating those diseases, they're constantly on the lookout for defects, like physical defects that can be uh, fixed either through like an augmentation or a graft of some sort, but they also have the job of harvesting the gene seed of a space marine when they fall on the battlefield. That gene seed is what makes a space marine a space marine. It is the arcane science of the emperor that has been put into gene craft and, and is really what transforms a human being into a space marine. And there's a limited supply. They don't make more. Yeah, and so you definitely don't want the Eldar to get their hands on that. Or for it just to perish. Like if, if somebody dies on the battlefield and you don't recover the gene seed, that's a space marine that you cannot get back in your chapter. That is, a, that is a permanent loss to your numbers. And so not only do the apothecaries see to the well like the physical well-being of the chapter, but to them is entrusted the very sacred duty of harvesting and like maintaining and storing this gene seed, which is really the heart of the chapter. Without it, the chapter cannot exist. And so the chief apothecary has a very tough job. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole lot of responsibility to put on one person. Um, and of course, they've got other apothecaries to help, but that's, that's just a, a great deal of work that they have to do. So those are your basic command structures. We're going to get into the um, kind of the company structure real quick because these are mm -hmm. very similar to the uh, the cohorts 
that we were observing within Vegetius's. There are 10, but they are designed to be deployed a little bit differently. As we described with the, the Legion, remember that the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 becomes a double deep line with 1 and 6 on the right flank and 5 and 10 on the left flank. The Space Marines do not typically fight in rigid formations like this. So they're not going to be deployed with the same mindset. But each of these companies has a job and has different duties it can perform, as we'll go through here in a second. So each of these companies has a command structure of itself. They have one captain, two lieutenants, usually a champion, which is like their best fighter, and then yeah. the ancients that we talked about, the standard bearers, right? When we talk about veterans... The units that this includes are your blade guard fighters, so your dudes with swords and shields, the stern guard, and terminators. Your people in very the, the very thick armor. It's like armor on your armor when it comes to space marines. These are your this is your veterans, these are your elites. These are your heavy hitters. Yeah. Battle line, when we're talking about battle line, think about tactical squads, intercessors, infiltrators, heavy intercessors. So these are dudes with guns, your basic infantrymen basically, is, is in kind of this, the battle line is an infantry kind of a focused um, squad. Close support includes things like assault intercessors who are designed to get in close. Uh, assault squads, of course, fast moving squads are designed to get in close. Any sort of bikes, centurion assault, inceptors, incursors, land vader, ATVs, land speeders, outriders, reavers, and storm speeders. So basically anything big, fast, that is maneuver based, but also those things that are melee-based are going to be here in close support, okay? And then the last one is fire support. This is where you... And these are all... Notice that all these things are, are, are infantry-based. We don't have a whole lot of vehicles here because those are attached to the armory. Your fire support are going to be like your aggressors, your big armored dudes that just wade in shooting fire, uh, centurions, devastators, eliminators, eradicators, hellblasters, suppressors. Anybody with specialty weapons designed to bring down the big targets are going to be here in the fire support. So keep that in mind as we're going through the companies because each of them have different like combinations of these elements. So your first company, your veterans, is very, very, very much like the Roman Legion. This is where you have your veterans, your honor guard, and dreadnoughts. I don't think we talked about what dreadnoughts are. There's going to be dreadnoughts available in just about any of these companies. And a dreadnought is a space marine who is too injured to continue living unassisted, but too valuable. The, the big boxy things. Yeah, they're too, too injured to continue living unassisted, but too valuable to lose. And so what they do is they entomb them and put them in a large mechanical suit. And this is the dreadnought. And dreadnoughts can, you know, they can fight with fists, they can fight with different weapons and that sort of thing, but a, a dreadnought ensures that that space marine can continue fighting for conceivably forever. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a comic about one named Tankred that is as edgelord and over-the-top as Warhammer 40k can be. It is one of the coolest things I've ever read. And the dreadnoughts are going to come from whatever company they served in. So if you were a, a first company veteran, quote-unquote, in life, and then you fell on the, on the field of battle and they decided to make you a dreadnought, chances are you're going to be a first company dreadnought. So that's kind of how that, that shakes out. The second through fifth uh, companies are battle companies. And so the second through fifth companies all have kind of the same... Setup? Structure. Structure. Yeah, setup. They all have battle line squads, close support squads, fire support squads, and dreadnoughts. So they're all very flexible. They all have everything you're going to need. They have that battle line, close support, and fire support in each of these companies. Each of these companies is designed to function as an independent part of the whole. 
then it won't necessarily need to rely on other companies for support because it's got that support. You know, they, everything is built within these given companies. This is very much in the same terms as the idea behind like when Napoleon was designing the Le, Le Grand Armée strategy, like the way he made his divisions very, very, very similar. Frederick uh, recommended a similar thing uh, when we were when we were talking about uh, uh, the 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 uh, pike and shot. Pike and shot yeah. is kind of a, a conglomeration like this. It can be really flexible. It can go any direction. Now, each of these companies, kind of the master of these companies, the captain, the highest ranking captain of each of these companies, has a different kind of responsibility typically within the chapter. Now, a lot of these things change on whether or not a chapter is codex compliant or not. This is just what a codex compliant chapter would be doing. The, the Gulliman ones, yeah? Yeah, like any of the ultramarine chapters or any of the, their successor chapters are typically codex compliant. Iron Hands are fairly t uh, compliant. Uh, Imperial Fists are fairly compliant. A lot of the chapters are compliant. Now, Blood Angels, Dark Angels, Space Wolves, not so much. So the, the master of the second battle company is known as the Master of the Watch. And to them falls the responsibility of making sure that like everything is, like security is good. You know, you, you've got patrols that are going out. You, you've got control over your either your fortress or the area around, Master of the Watch. The third company master is the Master of the Arsenal. They're supposed to keep a, a lock and key on the whatever central warehouse you're, you're storing all of your um, gear in. Um, your, like bullets and that sort of thing. Fourth is the master of the fleet. And so they, they take care of the ships. They make sure they're kind of in command of the, of the Navy. And then the fifth is the master of the marches. So this is your logistics guy. This is the one who's, whose job it is to make sure that food and material and people get from point A to point B and that the logistics exist for that to happen. When it comes to ground, again, the, the master of the fleet does it when, it's, when, when you're travel, traversing space. But once you're planet side, Master of Marches makes sure that everything goes smoothly on the logistics end of things. This guy's like the supply wagons guy. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. This is kind of similar to what I was uh, initially training to do in the army, was oh, okay. like this kind of logistics stuff. The sixth and seventh companies are reserve companies, and they are battle line reserve companies. So remember with those, those, those normal battle companies, they have everything they need. Battle line squads, close support, fire support. These reserve companies are just battle line squads. They're just to plug that gap where more bodies are needed. So they include battle line squads and dreadnoughts, of course. The sixth master is the master of rights. Make sure that everything is conducted properly and in, in accordance with the traditions of the, um, of the chapter. The seventh is the chief Vic Tuller. And I meant to look up this word before I, we came on. I did not. Do you happen to know what Victuler means? I have no idea what that means. Based on the, the base word, I'm going to assume that this is the person in charge of food. Because vittles are our food. And so I'm going to assume that this is the person who's in charge of procuring and distributing food and drink to all your soldiers. Again, in different groups, this looks differently. Some people exist off of basically the equivalent of bread and water. However, the space wolves, if you don't give them mead, they are not going to be happy. Um, so again, this this can be a an important role. The chief Victuler is responsible for all of the chapter's supply needs, uh, particularly pertaining to food, drink, and other personal requirements of the chapter's Astartes and human Boom. personnel. Okay, cool. I guessed right. <laughs> Basically, good job. Woo. 
If you speak faux Latin, you could get through a lot of uh, 40K through just sheer bluff. I, I, I read, as you probably heard with my pronunciation, I read Latin far better than I speak it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's their job. The Eighth Reserve Company is a close support company. So they exclusively have close support stuff in there. Their uh, master is known as the Lord Executioner. You can probably guess what their job is. Carry out them executions. people. Yep. And again, this is a close support group, so they're going to plug this in where they need a flanking or a, a melee push. Uh, one of the this this reserve company is going to go in there. The ninth reserve company, their master is the master of relics, working very very closely with the reclusium uh, to make sure that the relics are maintained and transported properly. And this is fire support squads. So these are going to be uh, your, your your heavy hitters, your specialty weapons um, are going to be here in this ninth reserve company if it needs to be deployed to take down a particularly large target. And then the 10th company is typically where a space marine will start their career in the scout company. Now, you also have vanguard squads in here. You also have some very, very, very heavy hitters that um, the new codex has applied here. But the largest component here is the scouts. And now scouts are space marines that have not typically undergone the complete training or physical transformation. They have certain uh, additions or certain uh, graphs that have already been applied, but they aren't a full space marine yet. And so... Okay, so that's what I was wondering. They're, they they are still genetically modified. They're just not done. Correct. Cooking. So, uh, like, let's say, like, they're, they're, they're not, they don't have 100%. So each of the, there's a bunch of different implants that go into making a space marine, whether it's the belcher gland or the, the special skin that they put on them so they can network with their, their power armor. Each of these requires a very painful surgery that takes a while to recover from. And so the process of becoming a space marine is very slow, and there's a lot that can go wrong. And so they, while they're kind of undergoing these changes and these procedures, they're serving in the scout company where they're also learning everything that they need to know to be a, a soldier with their chapter. And now they'll often, they'll, you'll obviously have veterans who serve here, who like sometimes will either choose or be put here as punishment in order to instruct these new guys. Uh, and, and rarely, rarely, you don't, you don't see the first company or the 10th company fighting by themselves. You don't. Uh, because that's not their job. They they work in conjunction with other companies. And, and the reserve companies you won't see usually fighting by themselves either. All this stuff is to support the battle line companies in what they're doing and to kind of form off of that. That makes sense. Yeah, so that's that's the organization of a Space Marine chapter. Do you have any questions on it, Thumbs? Um, no, not offhand. It, it all makes a whole lot of sense. I don't have a whole lot of input on it because it's... You know, taking in all this new information at one go. I'm sure I'll think of about five questions as soon as we stop recording. For sure. Uh, but that's our show for today. Uh, we, we, we've kind of gone through. Today we've been talking about organization and how the Legion does it and how we can kind of translate that over to the games that we play. Uh, we were talking about the, the decay that can occur within any of these organizations and how to watch for it and uh, prevent it. Next, we went into discussing some of the officers that existed in the Roman Legion and how those stereotypes, or not stereotypes, but uh, kind of I, um, ideas permeate in, in modern wargaming and modern communities. And then we discussed what a Space Marine chapter looks like, like what, what, like what the actual organization structure is for Space Marines and how similar it is and how different it is from a Roman Legion. But if you need more Tau in your life, I am still, uh, like, I, I know I've been bad, you can slap me on the wrist. I've been bad with the Instagram and Facebook. I'm really trying to get back on the ball there and make sure that we've got memes and info coming out for you guys. But we are on Instagram and Facebook, uh, Art of Wargaming podcast. 
Uh, you can email us. I'm, I'm still looking for more player profiles. I'm out at this point, guys. I need more player profiles. Oh, yeah. Which I understand. It can be hard to think about it right now because, you know, there's a lot. And, and, and not just fighter, not just uh, Bellagarth fighters. I would love to see some, some of our Warhammer 40K listeners uh, writing in and, and giving us something to, to put up for them. That'd be great, too. So, yeah, um, putting those up, putting up little little infographics on our little amusing memes. But if you can also listen to our sister shows on the Urverm Network as well. Yeah, you can listen to me and my buddy Tyler talk about anything nerdy and general nerdery. Uh, and you can listen to Tyler and our friend Danny talk about horror movies over at Fried Squirms. But yeah, I think for this week, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. Mm-hmm.